Hey there, friends. Uh, happy winter season to you. I sure get excited about this time of year. Maybe this is very silly. Maybe this is really just for me, because I know I'm I'm like I'm going to listen to this. But uh, this is just a bonus episode. This is man. Like when I was a kid, I always loved those like TV Christmas movie marathons. You know, like the channel that would just run a Christmas story for like 48 hours in the lead up to to Christmas, and um, like the the even like the PBS Kids. Um, like Arthur Christmas special and stuff like that. Like all of these, I don't know. I always really like that stuff. So this is maybe a bit silly. It's just a bonus episode. If you're not into it, you can skip right over it. No problem. There'll be a regularly scheduled episode next week as well. But this is like a marathon episode. I've just pulled all the holiday episodes from the past. So it's a mega, I think this is going to be like three or four hours long. And like I say, I know it's, it's silly, but I'm going to listen to it. These are some of my favorite things that I've done with my friends on this podcast so far. And so I, I love revisiting them every year. So maybe this is just for me. But if you enjoy it, here it is. If you're not into it, don't worry. Just skip on over it. Sorry, I'm a little sick right now. My voice is a bit annoying. But so here we've got, what do we got here? We're going to have Vera talking to us about Good King Wenceslas. We're going to have Scott talking to us about, oh, what was it? Like a Dutch Carol, I think. Um, and Monkey Bread, I think, comes up. We're going to have Heidi talking about Little Drummer Boy. We're going to have Aaron talking about Wexford Carol and tacos and avocados, you know, holiday. And I'll, I'll put the Timothy Cummings uh, interview as sort of the last wrap-up thing in this episode where we talked a little bit about his collection of uh, winter holiday tunes. Um, it's a great collection. I've been playing out of it for the last couple of months for like little social media videos and stuff like that. There are some serious treasures in there. Just cool, cool tunes that... I never would have encountered otherwise. Um, so here you go. I hope it's enjoyable and and have a great end of the year. Oh, wait, actually, hang on a sec. There's something else I was going to do here. I've got, oh, I've got a new, oh, I've, I've got a new um, sort of holiday-themed uh, T-shirt design up on Bagpipe Swag right now. And I'm selling, I'm selling it on a bunch of different stuff, but I'm, do, I'm doing another $15 T-shirt on it. So... Uh, hop over there if you want to get it. The the shipping is you know slows down during the holidays, so you gotta you gotta get it soon if you want it in time for your holiday Christmas parties and stuff. You know your 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 office parties and your family parties and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of ugly Christmas sweater style, but it's all it's I'm calling it the North Poland District Pipe Band. So there'll be a link in the show notes, or just go over to bagpipeswag.com and there'll be a big banner at the top of the website for the price. I'm I'm only gonna do the fifteen dollars throughout December. I, um, you know, I, again, this is like, this is a price where like, oh, I'll make a dollar or two on some of them. Some of the orders, depending on shipping and sizing, it will cost me a dollar or two. So it's going to come out kind of a wash, but that's okay with me. Um, the design took forever. So I hope, like, I hope it's like a nice design. Um, anyway, so check that out. And real quick, um, I'm, I'm writing out letters right now with like thank you cards with special, um, you might say limited run, uh, droning on swag, like little magnets and pins for all my patrons. Um, you wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, and so I'm also going to do a drawing for one of these shirts real quick. So I've got my little Cthulhu, uh, dice tower here. I've got their names written out with numbers assigned and, oh, nice. A nat 20. And that is Camille, Camille Osbrod. I'm going to send you a t-shirt. I'll reach out to you with, to get your sizing info and stuff. So if you want to, um, also be part of drawings in the future for albums and, and, uh, cool shirts and stuff like that, join the patreon thing but i didn't mean this to turn into a commercial i thought i meant that to just be fun anyway sorry now i'm rambling enjoy the episode and enjoy your holidays and and uh, uh much love to all of you have a great end of the year 
this isn't the 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 last episode for the year. There will still be uh, regularly scheduled episodes through the rest of December. This is just just for fun here at the top of the month. All right. Uh, bye bye. So, Vera, Good King Wenceslas. This is yep. one of those Christmas songs that I've heard all my life, and I have no idea who this guy was or why anybody would write a song about him. Well, you know, the first thing to note is that Good King Wenceslas is not actually a Christmas song. Okay, great place to start. That's yeah. my, my first uh, misunderstanding <laughs> has been ticked off. <laughs> so, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the song actually talks about an incident that takes place on December 26th, which is Boxing Day. And it's also called the Feast of Stevens. Okay, and I remember that lyric from the song something about the feast of stevens okay yeah so boxing day or the feast of stephen is um it's traditional for the rich to um take care of the poor on those days they'll donate money or goods or other things to them um i mean it's kind of evolved into a day when a lot of people box up excess things that they own and take them to thrift shops or donate them or you know just any number of things it's not popular in the states but where boxing day is huge that's that's where it's evolved from is this idea of the feast of stephen it's also the second day of onk (laughs) Onk. anyway we're not going to get into that because that's that's a whole nother thing but anyway podcast yeah so the first thing to note is good king wenceslas is about a king Actually, he's a duke. <laughs> okay, so basically everything about this song is a lie, or at least everything I understood about it just is not true. It's very hard to say what about this song actually occurred and what is just um, kind of made up. Sure. Uh, you know, to kind of give us a good idea of what this guy was actually like. So uh, the Duke of Wenceslas was born around 903 A.D., so he's a 10th century duke mm. from Czech, Czechoslovakia, and, and so which was Bohemia. That was Bohemia at the time. And was Wenceslas mm-hmm. then a, a province or city there? Or was it just the name of his home? Or was this his, his surname? That's or? his last name. I see. Okay. <laughs> yep. Whew, I um, know nothing about this. Well, actually, I think that's it, it's actually his first name. But, but yeah, oh, so okay. Wenceslas is his name. And he was a duke. And um, born 903 in Prague, or sorry, yeah, in um, Bohemia. Uh, He actually went to college at Prague, which is in Bohemia. Um, He was very well educated, and he had no desire to be a ruler at all. That wasn't what he was aspiring to be. Um, His father was a Catholic, and he was very, very devout Christian. Um, and he raised Wenceslas in the very traditional Christian manner, and so he was raised Catholic, um, and he loved everything about Catholicism, especially um, the aspects of giving to those who are in need. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, unfortunately, his mother Uh, was not on board with this idea and this is what caused a lot of issues later on so his mother was of a different faith Uh, all that they say is that she was a pagan but i mean back in 
those times. Anybody who was not Christian was considered pagan. <laughs> right. It's it's <laughs> basically, it could be everything else. <laughs> yep. Everything okay. else that was not like straight-laced, right to the letter Catholic was pagan. So, right. so like depending on who you're talking to, even like a different flavor of Catholicism could have been referred to as pagan. Exactly. Yeah, she might have been kind of a reformed type of Christian, but we don't know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so she and um, his younger brother were considered pagans, and they were not of this Christian um, uh, belief. Anyway, his father died, and when his father died, there was a power struggle between Wenceslas and his younger brother. And um, it actually was to the point where it split Bohemia in two parts. Wenceslas ruling half of it with um, Catholic tradition and his younger brother ruling the other half with pagan tradition, whatever, whatever, that, <laughs> whatever <means>. that was. <laughs> gotcha. um, but Wenceslas's mother, um, she wanted to abolish everything um, Christian, well, Catholic specifically in Bohemia. And as soon as her husband died, she removed a whole bunch of Catholics from power and um, replace them with pagans. <laughs> Again, whatever that means, right? <laughs> yeah, whatever that means. Um, and it was Wenceslas's grandmother, his father's mother, who was worried about uh, the, the pagan takeover, essentially, and the wiping out of Catholicism from Bohemia. So she told Wenceslas, you need to stop this. It is your duty as a Christian, it is your duty to stop this from happening. You need to bring people to Christ. Um, you know, you need to uh, to take care of this. So that's when Wenceslas tried to take power from his mother, and that's what caused Bohemia to split into two. Mm. Wow. So this this song is rooted in something so much bigger than I had ever even imagined. Oh yeah, yeah. So and I mean, I mentioned before, Wenceslas had no desire to be in power. He actually wanted to be a monk. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he studied how to be a monk. And he was very good at taking care of the poor and the needy. And he was even um, noted to have visited dungeons and crypts to um, service the people that were in those places. So in the dungeons, he would go and basically uh, sermon and um, uh, give help to the people in the dungeons. And then he'd go down to the crypts and pay respects to the people who had died. Um, and this was a very big deal to him. And he was very well known for being um, somebody who would take care of the needy. Well, now this is perhaps partly influenced by the fact that we're currently in the midst of the COVID stuff, but that I mean, I'm just imagining a 10th century crypt or dungeon and just thinking like, man, that's, that's genuinely <laughs> risky stuff there. And, you know, in terms of disease and things like that, that's, uh, yeah. that's not insignificant that he was willing to do that. Yeah. It was a really big deal. And funny enough, he, he was so good. And there were so many stories told about, um, how good of a, a leader, a ruler he was that it even reached all the way to England. Mm -hmm. And, that is where this huge like idea of the really righteous king comes from. Oh, is so, actually I, so this, this kind of almost kind, not to say he wasn't good, but this even more like sort of mythologized version of, of Wenceslas is born mm -hmm. in, in England then. 
Yeah. I well, see. that and it is in Czech, too, because they loved him there, too. Gotcha. But he was so good that um, it spread, like, how good of a, a, a leader, a ruler he was. Ah, right, right. Um, anyway, so um, yeah, that's where we get this vision of the of the really good king, um, and yeah, it took off in England, and that's where a lot of these stories of the really good kings start coming from in England. Um, and he was such a good king that um, a word of his deeds reached Rome, and the emperor of Rome at the time. Uh, actually sent him a bunch of relics from saints. And, um, I mean, we're, back we're in these like, times... What, like like fingers and stuff? Oh, no. <laughs> uh, so different saints would have, like, different um, items that were dear to them. Ah, and they were believed to have magical powers. Gotcha. And that was a relic. And the, um, the leader of the Roman Empire at the time was so impressed with Wenceslas that he sent him several relics from some saints and so essentially sent him magical powers mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and Wenceslas being so enthusiastic about Catholicism this would have been pretty cool for him I'd imagine mm -hmm. yep so um, so unfortunately um, Wenceslas's mother was so concerned about his popularity and how good he was doing that she arranged to have his a paternal grandmother murdered. She was the one, you know, that initially uh, encouraged Wenceslas to um, seize power, right. and you know, to save the Catholic faith from being exterminated in Bohemia. Um, but she caused the death of of his paternal grandmother, and then on the twenty eighth of September, um, oh geez, and I didn't write the date down. Uh, he was like forty years old, about. Mm -hmm maybe 50, um, his, uh, his mother convinced his younger brother to kill him. Wow. So, so <laughs> if we're feeling like there's a little too much drama at our own holiday parties, we, uh, we, we could just sing a round of Good King Wenceslas and remember it could always be worse. Yep. Well, um, basically he became a martyr as soon as that happened. And Bohemia, and especially Czechoslovakia, they celebrate good king wenceslas day on september 28th every year which is the day that he died <laughs> huh. i didn't um, even know he had his own day that's awesome yeah yeah and he is the patron saint of czechoslovakia and he is um known as uh, the patron saint um that takes care of the poor and the needy interesting so so where this 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 song is familiar the the song that's familiar to me it has you know anglo origin do you know? Do you, do you think they? Is it Actually, something that you hear people singing in Czechoslovakia it, on September twenty eighth? It has Czech origins. Oh, does it? Was it? A, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So it was originally written. So it's funny. The song is plagiarized from an old Czech poem written by a um, Czech named Vaclav Aloy. I can't even say his name. It sounds I'll fun though. Vaclav. Yeah. Um, so he wrote it in Czech, German, and Latin. It was written in the 13th century, this poem about good King Wenceslas. So we are talking a little while after Wenceslas' yes. actual time. So it's funny. After Wenceslas died, there were four biographies written about him, and those were spread far and wide. Um, and you don't know exactly what all in them is true and what is not. Sure. Um, a bit of a Legend of King Arthur situation, I'd imagine. <laughs> yes, exactly. 
So uh, anyway, about the 13th century, there's actually a tune written. So the tune is actually Tempus Addis Floridum, which is a, a tune written about spring flowers um, when they bloom first after the frost is done. And um, so the, the tune itself is from the 13th century. That's I, not the lyrics, but the tune. You know, I feel mm-hmm. like I can hear that in the tune. You know, it sounds like that. It sounds like flowers blooming and stuff. Yeah. So it was a 19th century Czech poet. So this is in the 1800s. That um, So there was a 19th century Czech poet who initially wrote um, this poem about good King Wenceslas. And like I said, he wrote it in German, Latin, and um, Czech. And it was published in a book. And um, it was in 1853 that this English hymn writer, um, who was actually famous for uh, writing a, a bunch of hymns and Christmas tunes and transposing them from other languages, mm-hmm. he got a hold of this uh, this big poem that was written this poem has like 13 stanzas and um he took that and used that to make this song about good king wenceslas and he just fit it to the tune <laughs> i see i see yeah so i'm thinking the the five or six verses of good king wenceslas that i usually see like oh that's a pretty long song but he was working from like a like a like a beowulf size tome of yes. poetry and just kind of pulling and making it fit Yes, but all of the main features are there, and that's how we know that he plagiarized, or at least took so heavily from that poem that you may as well say he plagiarized from the original poem. So the the poem includes a king who sees a poor person gathering wood and decides to help. He and his servant gather food, wine, and wood to take to the poor people who have gathered in the woods. Um, The servant, like it's cold night, there's snow on the ground. The servant can't move any longer in the cold, and the king tells the servant to follow in his footsteps, and it will be easier to move along. And they make it to the poor people, and they celebrate with them. Mm-hmm. Um, those are very specific uh, details, especially um, when it starts out, when he's looking out on, it's the Feast of Stephen, he's looking out in the night, there's fresh snow on the ground, and there's a poor person gathering wood for a fire. And so it, those are so specific in detail that it's so hard to say, well, you know, no, he made this up himself. <laughs> yeah, if we had some, what did you say? This was this guy was working in what, the 13th century, did you say? 18th century? 1800s, no? Yeah, 1800s? Yeah, 1800s. So if we had a, if we had a 19th century uh, copyright lawyer on this, they'd, <laughs> they'd definitely have a few proofs to bring before the judge at this point. Yes. Yep, they absolutely, and it would be seen as, as plagiarism, like 100%. There's too many... Um, too many things that are the same going on. Of course, he'd anyway. be like, "Hey, you know, I I, I work for a nonprofit. It's a uh, it's a uh, he'd be like, it's um, what would they call it? It's it's under fair use. He'd like find some way to try to weasel out of it, right? Yep. <laughs> it's so old. I can do whatever I want. Right, something it. like that. So um, the interesting thing is that the story in the poem was written hundreds of years after Good King Wenceslas was alive. Mm-hmm. It's um, not clear whether or not that story came from one of the biographies, but it's also hard to know if the biographies were accurate to what he actually did. But the, um, the heart of the story 
is there, the heart of who this person was, and it makes it so that it's plausible that something like this could have happened. So in that case, you could say that this is an accurate portrayal of King Wenceslas, which, by the way, after he was killed, um, he was named King. Um, it was the Romans that ended up giving him that title posthumously. Oh, that I is see. why we call him King Wenceslas. Oh, gotcha. All right. Mm-hmm. I got it. Well, I really like this a lot. I had honestly, <laughs> I had never looked, heard all of, or at least understood all of the lyrics until prepping mm-hmm. for this episode and reading through them was actually a lot of fun, but it becomes a lot more fun with all of this history that you've given to it. Yeah. And you know, yeah. I, I love this kind of stuff. These, these stories that come down to us from so long ago and uh, you know, understanding that like, you know, the, in in modern in the modern use of the word true maybe yeah maybe it's like factually <laughs> perfectly accurate but it may very well describe a you know personal attributes uh yeah. you know give an idea of who this guy was and i'll be honest until now this song has been kind of one of those cheesy fringe christmas tunes that i've never really been very into oh well and now it's... suddenly i'm like way into this i really like this now you know <laughs> It's funny that you say that because I actually, um, I looked up the reactions of people at the time in 1853 to this song. <laughs> what were the <laughs> <And> hot takes? <laughs> they didn't, well, so the general public liked it, but the critics hated it. Oh, sure, them critics. They said that it was not Christian at all mm. in any way, shape, or form. It was fluff, it was propaganda. It um, was expected to fade and die with history. They also said that it was um, it was just like uh, they were incensed that <laughs> he took that tune from the 13th century, put lyrics to it about a 10th century king, and then tried to sell it as like a new Christian tune. <laughs> so, so this is like, like Chris- this would be like if today we took like oh who knows like last christmas i gave you my heart or something and then but then also set it to the tune of like some sacred hymn and then like released it on the radio and like all the critics would be like you know this is just fluff this is ridiculous (laughs) this is what's wrong with consumerism and this will never last and then centuries later it's still around yeah and you know what i think it's very fair to say that it is 100 percent the way that we react to songs that are created now that are being sold as christmas songs and we just say i don't think so that's not a traditional christmas tune and speaking of which did you know that up until just recently within the last 50 75 years um christmas hymns were not considered hymns and were not sung in churches really i had no idea yeah they were considered to be inappropriate for a a nice like christian setting and it wasn't until um people really started to read the lyrics and listen to the melodies and like you know what these are really nice tunes i think they can be sung in a church setting and that's when they started to be sung in a church setting how interesting that that kind of tracks of course i'm no historian i don't know how exactly it would tie together but i was when i was talking to uh to tim cummings about uh christmas carols he was he mentioned that you know carol even the word carol comes from uh, the, this idea of singing and dancing both at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine just in this like sort of vague ethereal grasp that I have of history, which is very vague and very ethereal, <laughs> but I can kind of imagine like a, 
like a long, long, long time ago, a sort of maybe you might say like more free or natural kind of, yeah, dancing is cool kind of religious movement existing. And then this this sort of ratcheting down and tightening up of like what's permissible within the walls of a synagogue or church um, becoming coming closer to like what I understand to be like a sort of a Victorian England kind of sentiment of like what's appropriate and what is very inappropriate. One should never do this. One should always do that. And then, so, so then at that point, like Carol's becoming like, oh, music of the plebs, you know, this is like, this is like pop music. It's not sacred enough. And then, <laughs> and then kind of coming out of that again. Yep. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe, maybe I should cut all of that out because that's just me being a wild speculator, really. <laughs> no, no um, you know, it's, it's interesting uh, that it used to be that um, I mean, you know, pagans, a lot of times when uh, when they refer to pagans, it was anybody whose religious rituals included things like loud singing, dancing, drinking, making merry, um, you know, things like that. And then the Christians came in and were very um, subdued and calm and quiet and quiet, you know, and they just really wanted to be as still as possible, <laughs> it mm. seems. And so these traditions of being you know loud and boisterous and celebrating in a loud way you know they they thought was offensive to the spirit of of a god you know mm -hmm. whereas the ones that were singing and dancing and making loud they felt like no that is the appropriate way to celebrate you know the amazingness of being alive and the amazingness of what you know their god had had provided and given to them so it's just different opinions and different viewpoints on what is appropriate and what is not. But yeah, eventually the idea of being loud was viewed as inappropriate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In one way or another, whether it's via my mad <laughs> speculations or just... It, it is fun, though, to imagine these kind of cultural worlds colliding, you know, like at what point these these things come together and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Christmas carols 100% would have collided with um, religious things, if you think about it that way. Yeah. You know, you, if you go into a church and a Christmas carol is, you know, singing and dancing and being merry and being loud, yeah, like that's not going to go over well. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Wenceslas uh, definitely was a king who existed. Um, do not mistake him for the three that followed. 
they were not the guy that the song is written about. And the way that we know that is because of the, um, the poem that was written about the original Good King Wenceslas uh, that was written by the Czech. Um, and, uh, you know, also the fact that soon after he died, he was seen as a saint and a martyr for Christ. Mm-hmm. And that is why they celebrate the 28th for him. And they don't celebrate any days for the uh, the Wenceslases that followed in the few hundred years after. Gotcha. Record set straight. That's right. And let's dive in. Help me out with the pronunciation on this one, too, though, Vera. I don't know. Is it Wassel or Wassail or something else entirely? You know, uh, that's also uh, up for debate. Um, gotcha. It's an old English word, and the pronunciation is most similar to West Hale. Mm. But, I mean, nowadays we call it Wassel, Wassail, Wassel. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't go with Wassel, so yeah, I, I feel like it sounds really silly. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think Wassail is going to be the closest to the Old English that was originally being used. Gotcha. And what is it? So, it's an Old English word that means good health to you. Hmm. or be healthy. So it's just seen as a general wish of wellness um, upon the person who you are you know, uh, giving the greeting to. And in a lot of ways, it's a greeting as well as a well wish. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, this is another um, item that is not actually a Christmas thing. How cool. <laughs> Lay it on me. Give me some of this good info. All right, so way back, we're, we're talking like hundreds and hundreds, a thousand years ago, in England, um, they, uh, this was before they were very Christian, um, they would have, you know, their harvest season, and then in the middle of winter, right around winter solstice, they would have another celebration. And this, you know, has roots back into the, the pagans um, that were around back then. And the pagans had huge celebrations around the solstice, especially winter solstice. And this is where Christmas originally comes from, is the celebration around winter solstice. And uh, the Christians pulled a lot of um, ideas and a lot of uh, elements from a bunch of other religions and beliefs and mashed them together to make the Christmas that we know now. But way back before that happened, in the winter solstice celebrations, one of the things that they would do is they would hold this really big party out in the fruit orchards, especially the apple orchards, and they would um, they would uh, have this big festival, and they were being loud and obnoxious because they wanted to wake up the trees, and it was um, a way to drive away evil spirits. And that would guarantee a good cider apple crop for the following year. They believed that the dancing, the singing, the bells, the instrumentation, the banging of sticks, and the costumes would make would wake up the trees from their slumber, and let them know that they are loved and appreciated. And you know that would help them also shake off any of the the evil spirits that have like managed to um, hang on to the sleeping trees. 
<laughs> I see. So, so there might have been like then the next spring, the trees that bloom. It's like, yeah, we got through to those ones. But what if one of them has like some some form of rot or mildew? It's like, ah, we didn't get the spirit off of that one. D- darn it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, back then before they understood the science of things, that is how they would explain the unexplainable. And that's why you had um, things like, you know, these fall harvest celebrations where they would celebrate and thank gods for their bountiful harvest. Or if something went terribly wrong and they had a really bad harvest, they would find somebody in the community to blame for that really bad harvest. Well, you were a bad person. We're being punished for your badness. And then that person would oftentimes take the rap for everything bad going on yeah, and oftentimes would end up losing their life. Like this, um, it's got to be someone's fault to point sort of way of seeing things. Yeah, yeah. They they just were not capable I guess they, they were capable. The science was not there yet to explain exactly what was going on uh, with diseased trees and why diseases spread from one tree to the next, why a harvest is better one year versus the next year. It was just things that, you know, was mysterious to them. And mm-hmm. so the best way that they knew how to um, to understand it was through, you know, rituals and things. And if you did a ritual and something seemed to work, then they would latch on to it. Yeah, shoot, let's do it again next year. Exactly, gotcha. yeah. And then it becomes tradition. So um, what is wassail, the drink? Now that we understand that, um, you know, it's, it's actually a wish of well-being. Uh, so where does this drink come into all this, you know? Yeah, yeah that's, that was throwing me off because I was like, man, I thought it was some sort of like maybe kind of fruity <laughs> drink. Uh, you know, can you just yell wassail or wassail anytime you drink anything? Yeah, uh, so essentially, um, when they were out there celebrating with the trees, it was cold, and they liked to have a hot drink with them. And oftentimes, that hot drink would be a mold cider or wine or mead, and um, they would be, and the cider especially would be made from the apples from those trees. The mm-hmm. cider apples were very important for making cider because back then it was not safe to drink water. That's something people always forget. Uh, people would drink um, drinks that had a, some alcohol in them because the alcohol made the drink sterile and safe to drink. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean everybody was falling over drunk everywhere. There's always just enough alcohol in it to make it safe to drink. Mm-hmm. And um, water was not drunk very often at all. It was, you would drink more beer and ciders than anything else in your lifetime this long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so they would be drinking um, this uh, nice mold cider or a mead or a beer. And um, I mean, of it was a big festival. We, we say so nice. We, uh, odds are, like, to our modern palate, it probably didn't actually taste all that great. But <laughs> probably. You don't know. Yeah, who um, knows, right? I don't know. It might, it might have been delicious. <laughs> <laughs> to them, it was probably amazing. Yeah, probably one of the <laughs> sweetest things they ever got to enjoy. Because they didn't have Kool-Aid. You right, know. no Kool-Aid, no refined sugars. They were probably living on a bunch of tubers and potatoes most of the year. So, <laughs> so yeah, anything with any kind of sweetness to it, I'm sure, was just heavenly mm-hmm. to them. Um, but, yeah, so uh, and what do you do with a festival? You start to dress things up. And that's what they started doing to their drinks. So they started adding stuff to them, such as raisins and spices and other fruit drinks and things. You would have like uh, some people would have different wines that they would mix together. But the the main point of it was that it was a hot drink um, and it had some alcohol in it. And um, so this 
also started spilling into the cities um, and the villages and the towns. And so you would have um, you would have poor people going around uh, doing small performances, if you will, for money, um, because the uh, the wealthy people oftentimes were more willing to give in the holiday season of Christmas versus um, other other times of the year. Sure. So, you know, you've got this holiday coming up, you've got, you know, a whole bunch of people celebrating and whatnot, and the, um, the wealthy have loosened their pocketbooks and are, you know, willing to give money and things to the poor. So the poor figured this out and next thing you know, you have people basically on every street corner singing and asking for money, going from house to house, asking for money, <laughs> asking for things. Um, well, this suddenly makes sense because there's that lyric in at least one of the Wassel songs, Here We Go A-Wasseling. Uh-huh. Yep, here we go a-wasseling. And um, so it's funny, if you look at the lyrics, all of the lyrics to these tunes, um, there's, okay, so there's a slew of lyrics first. Yeah, and but there are the old... I, I didn't realize how many tunes there are that are based around wassel and wassling. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's there a lot. There are a lot. <laughs> yeah, I have the lyrics for one of the many wassel songs here. Uh, this is from uh, Tim Cummings' collection on this day, Earth Shall Ring. Um, and we will fade out of this section to the the music of this tune, the arrangement that he has. Um, but here are the lyrics for it. Uh, this is Cornish Wassel. And insert your own preferred pronunciation of the word Wassel in this uh, tune. I'm just going to read it like that, Wassel. Uh, so it says, Now Christmas is coming and New Year begin. Pray open your door and let us come in with our Wassel, Wassel, Wassel. Joy come to our Wassel, Wassel. Or, or excuse me, joy come to our jolly Wassel. Uh, so you can you can definitely hear that it there. Um, let us in. We're out in the cold. Uh, you know, good wishes to you, etc. Yes. Um, so, in some of those old versions, you will see where they're first complimenting the master and the lady of the house, and also the children, and then they are asking for anything that they have to spare, be it a cup of hot beer or to let them go stand for a bit by the hearth so that they can warm up a little bit, um, or food, perhaps. And one of the lines that they, one of the lines in one of the songs essentially said, you know, thanks for, um, for sharing your plentiful with us, and please think about poor us out in the cold, freezing, while you're enjoying your nice warm house with all of your things. <laughs> wow, so this is like a, a really well put together, like, pre-packaged panhandling script yes like here first you, you lead with compliments yep. you give a little dose of guilt you point <laughs> out you know it, lucky you and poor me it, and i'm i'm seeing <laughs> i feel like i'm seeing a direct connection to that line in uh, we wish you a merry christmas that exactly. suddenly they're like now bring us some figgy pudding yes. I, i've always been like that's so demanding like what what's the deal with that yeah it is that exact same thing this is exactly where those things come from. Interesting. And the lyrics, you know, they change over time because people figure out what works better because after a while you're like, I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Got to shake it up a bit. Doesn't work so well anymore. That, that or the person who's out there doing the singing is like, I'm tired of wassail. I want figgy pudding. I'm going to change the lyrics. <laughs> you know what? Enough of this wassail stuff. So 
The thing to think about, though, with that wassail is because you had children doing this too, right? Mm -hmm. So the wassail drink that they would have ready for these Christmas carolers that would come running around, um, it was a warm mold cider drink. And um, oftentimes it would have um, orange slices, raisins, and a, a type of a bread that could be served with it that they could sop up the drink with, almost like you would with soup and a roll nowadays. Yeah. Um, also, the, um, the wassail itself would, could be served in a very large or, ornate communal cup and they would pass it around. So it's not like they'd bring out a cup for everybody. They'd bring out this big, beautiful, usually made of silver, ornate communal cup, and then they would hand it over, and the people would sip out of it and pass it along. And it had just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it had just enough alcohol in it that it would make, that would warm them up. Yeah, and you know, get the circulation back into their toes and their fingers. Um, so yeah, that is that is the kind of the history. Now, as for like a recipe for wassail. Yeah, have you ever made it? I have. Tell me about that. Okay, so there are as many recipes as there are lyrics to this tune. Ah, gotcha, yeah. <laughs> because of the fact that it has evolved over time. Oh yeah, it's been it sounds like it's been around for a very long time. Plenty of time yes. for people to experiment. But if you want to do um, probably the closest that you can to what might have been served a thousand years ago during these festivals, I think you have to start with an apple cider. Um, alcoholic or not, you can use either one that you would wish. <clears throat> Put that apple cider into a large pot and then add in some cinnamon. I like to do one or two sticks of cinnamon. Um, or you can do apple pie spice because that's got all the right spices in it. Or um, if you do cinnamon, add some nutmeg um, and, you know, maybe some cloves in there if you really want. And um, That's all the right stuff for, for a good you know, yeah. seasonal <laughs> aromatic experience for sure. And I recommend using a pressed apple cider. Don't use an apple cider that comes from concentrate, please. That's mm. not real stuff. <laughs> And that's so it, for, for anybody identifying, other than using the good old Ned Flanders uh, <laughs> nominator. I don't remember what it was. It's like, if it's, if it's cloudy and brown, you're in Cider Town. <laughs> if it's, yes. If it's sweet yes. and clear, you got juicy there, mister. I can't remember now what, is, what exactly you said, but, but yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Cider is typically a clouded color. And there is some excellent cider to be had here in Utah. Um, and it's not alcoholic. You can get the non-alcoholic, and it's amazing. There's some that they sell at Rolly's Red Barn down south Utah County. You can also pick some up at Smith's. Uh, Treetop does a version I've of I've got a bottle of that in cider. the fridge. There you go. You got the good stuff. We should check with Danny. I think Danny L Lindell in the band, He's he's uh -huh. got his family's got some orchard land down there in, uh, what, what is that town, Genoa? Oh, um, nice. I wonder if yeah. they're contributing in any way to any of these ciders. They might so be cherries. I'm not sure if they're apples, actually. The other thing to add to this, to just make it that much more special, add some pressed orange juice. Mm. Notice I said pressed. Don't get the concentrate. <laughs> Once again. <laughs> add some orange juice, or you could add um, some cherry juice, because uh, uh, you know, were thinking about the wines that they had back then. Mm. Um, but I like orange juice in this. Um, 
and you heat it up make sure that you stir it regularly um, and then just serve it and enjoy it's an amazing hot drink that I love like I've been making it for years around Christmas time because I just think it's so good um, and I mean yeah. if you look online there's lots of other things you can add to it um, people like to put raisins in it <laughs> yeah I like most foods I'll be honest, just for me personally, raisins are like one of the only things I'm like, why is this even around? I'd much rather have a grape. I don't understand why we had to do this to this poor grape. Humiliated grape. But that, what you described sounds delicious. I know that I've had wassail of some kind before, but I think it was basically hot Kool-Aid, which oh, was like geez. not super delicious. No, <laughs> no. What you're describing sounds pretty darn good. Yeah. You know, give it a shot. Um, and I like to do um, like one part of um apple cider and then maybe one quarter to one third part orange juice and you can absolutely play with the amounts i mean there is no set like this is wassail this is the official real wassail because over the years it has evolved so much and you know it, it was everything from beer to wine to mead to cider way back when you know they were singing wassail so however we do it, it's probably authentic to some time period. <laughs> unless you're using stuff from concentrate, then yeah, it's unless, authentic to no time period. <laughs> right. If, it, if it's hot Kool-Aid, then uh, that's not quite it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but I highly recommend people give it a go. Yeah, um, I want to know if anybody tries this, especially if somebody pairs this with Jeff's shortbread recipe. It'd be so fun. Oh, geez. Yeah. yeah. And there's lots of um, recipes online. You don't have to do it in a pot on the stove. You can do it in a slow cooker. Mm. Um, you can do it in an instant pot if that's what you're into. <laughs> One more use for the instant pot. I mean, you could probably put it in a Dutch oven and stick that in your oven if you really want it <laughs> to. <laughs> I'm going to smoke my waffle this year. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Just go stick it in the smoker outside and <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, Wassel, what an incredible drink that's named after an old English word that means good health to you. Did you have kolaches for breakfast this morning? No, but I thought about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's you're, you're inextric inextricably. Uh, is that the word inextricably? That's a good word. Inextricably connected to kolaches for me now. So that's, I thought the same thing when I woke up this morning, I was like, man, I could use some kolaches. <laughs> Always. <laughs> so here we are. One of my favorite people. We're about to talk about one of my favorite things, bagpipes and tie it into one of my favorite times of year, the Christmas season. What have you got on the plate for me, Scott? What can you tell me about? Well, thanks for the opportunity, James. I've got two tunes I wanted to talk about briefly. Um, one is from the Isle of Man, and the other is a Polish tune that both can be played on the bagpipes. 
So the first tune I'd like to talk about is a song called Egan Ons. And as you read it, it may not read the same way that you would pronounce it, but it's yeah. Egan Ons Bethlehem. And this is um, from the Manx Gaelic. It's a traditional carval or song. So like I mentioned, it's from the Isle of Man. Um, it's an old tune, um, but the tune was actually collected back in like the 1890s. Um, by a guy named W.H. Gill, and he also later composed the Manx National Anthem. I can't sing that for you. Oh, um, <laughs> but it was interesting. So long before Christianity took hold in Scotland and Ireland and Isle of Man, uh, the Celts celebrated the winter solstice and the coming of light and hope. And so the echoes of paganism still resound in this 13th and 14th century tune which is kind of cool like it's a, it's an old tune yeah very let cool. me just let me just read like the first verse for you are you, are you gonna read it to me in manx gaelic i wish i could have practiced longer <laughs> to do that here's the trans translation okay. <laughs> uh now let us all this feast day keep with hearts and soiled and clean in memory of jesus christ to christ a child in bethlehem but it's kind of cool that the tune is pretty simple it's kind of a i'm gonna call it a minor minor tune i i could just sing the tune for you which is kind of cool yeah go but for it goes it. yeah it goes something like this So it's kind of a cool tune. But um, what I've got is a, a score to it. So if you'd like to play it on the pipes, um, there's also a recording that I heard from a group called Apollo's Fire. Um, they did a concert back in 2012. And oh, it's just beautiful. If you listen to the whole concert, it's really cool, too. They play some other Celtic music. Um, and then I've got some links to some other people that have sung it. There's a lady, Ruth Keggins who's got a lovely arrangement. And then there's an Alexander Slater. Um, I think she sang it just a couple of years ago. I've got a link out on Twitter. Anyway, we've got a link for several different things. There's a Pamela Carouche who sang it back in 1968. And kind of an interesting story when she sang it, it was recorded, but no one knew who she was. And then I think it was just a couple of years ago, they were trying to track down like, who was this woman? And she's got a great voice. And Anyway, they finally figured it out and matched her up with <laughs> who sang it. So. Oh, I see. So yeah, now this is this is really fun. I mean, with a with a tune this old, you can kind of expect a lot of people will have done it. But it, it also yeah. like that's a that's a catchy. If you can use the word ca catchy, I, I'd sooner say maybe haunting, but in a positive way. Um, yeah, melody. It sticks with you. Is all I'm getting at. I guess it does. Um, yeah, its popularity yeah, it's is proven by the fact that it's still around after so much time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, what, and you can play it on the pipes. <laughs> help help my ignorance. Uh, I've I've always this is one of those things that I've always wondered because I encounter it in passing, but I've never taken the time to like type it into Google. Is mm -hmm. Manx in reference to the Isle of Man specifically? It is, okay. yeah. So it when I see is. things like Manx Gaelic or the, the Manx Celts, etc., that's um the, the people's languages, etc., that are specific to the Isle of Man. Yep. Or the Manx cat, even. 
What? <laughs> Whoa, I hadn't even made yep. that connection. Wow. There you go. Yeah, crazy stuff. Now suddenly the Manx cat is like a Christmas cat in my mind. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, any other notes about this this tune? No, really all that I've got. I, I just recommend playing it. I wasn't familiar with it. I started doing some research on it and kind of fell in love with it. So it's it's one that I'm going to add to my Christmas tunes to play. Awesome. Well, and that, that list that you had um, of... Uh, links to people doing renditions of it we'll include that in the notes for sure so just hop over there and click some links and get familiar with this really pretty tune awesome that'd be great cool now scott i'm gonna kind of put you on the spot here i'm curious uh do you have any <laughs> uh like holiday treats or meals or food traditions of any kind holiday favorites that you want to talk to me about or that i could convince you to talk to me about sure um our family for Christmas morning, this is kind of fun. We make something that's called monkey bread. It's just um, like the Rhodes rolls that you dip in brown sugar and pudding and you bake. And so it's this really sticky, sticky um, bread. We put it in a bump pan. So if you can imagine Christmas morning, you can smell kind of a cinnamon flavored super sticky that's going to get everywhere sticky but just kind of a delicious treat what kind of pudding do you use um i think we do like a butterscotch so you just kind of roll the bread in butter and then you roll it in uh instant pudding and then you add some brown sugar and spices and just layer it into a a bump pan and and cook it up I think that I've so. seen. I think I've seen monkey bread before, because after it comes out of that bunt pan, it kind of ends up in like sort of sort of this pull apart sort of situation, right? Where you can kind of yeah. pull those chunks out that are the individual rolls all smushed together. Yep, very caramelized, very buttery, very gooey, very good. So. I I like it in that it sounds delicious, and the utilization of Rhodes rolls makes it simple, and so it's something <laughs> I could actually do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. That's actually, that's how I make kolaches when I'm making them at home is I use Rhodes oh, Rolls. Oh, really? Yeah, I just let them rise almost completely and and I prep the filling and then I just basically smash that filling into the roll, you know, and kind of close it around it, then let them rise oh, another wow. 15 minutes and bake them. And it works out pretty oh, well. Oh, brilliant. That's really good. So may yeah. at this, at, may at this uh, special time of year, the people at, at the Rhodes bakery uh enjoy <laughs> special cheerfulness and joy because they bring so much of it to us <laughs> yes let that tradition continue forever <laughs> and what else you got for me scott what else do you have? well i've got it i've got another tune um and this one's a, a polish tune again reading it polish is kind of a cool language it it doesn't have a lot of um vowels in the language but yeah. this, this 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 tune's called you you may be familiar with this one it's called infant holy infant lowly in polish you pronounce it as show leisure and so there's lots okay. of w's and z's and yeah X's i was gonna say and... I'm, I'm looking at the the written form of the name and i wouldn't have pronounced it that way now that you've said it i can see that <laughs> but uh not only are there w's and z's there's also like crossed out letters and dots above consonants and stuff all kinds of things that i have no idea what to do with yeah and this one's this one's really cool i mean once you hear it you're like oh yeah i i recognize this tune um it's a traditional polish christmas carol 
And it's kind of cool. This song also could date back to the 13th century. So we're we're talking ancient musical history for both of these tunes. I um, love that. When I, when I when I encounter tunes like that that are so old, I just like I can't help but wonder like what did did someone turn over a rock somewhere in like Western Europe and find <laughs> sheet music, you know, chiseled into it? Like how right. how on earth does such a thing last so long? It's amazing. See, that would be a cool thing to figure out. Like, where did this song come from? Who tracked it down? Yeah. You know, what was the history of that? So um, I think it was translated into English in 1920. Um, and it's interesting. This song's rhythm resembles that of a Polish folk dance called a mazurka. Oh, I've heard of that. Uh, this was popularized by Frederick Chopin. Um, and it's kind of interesting. The short rhythm phrases lead to a crescendo at the start of each stanza's final lines that goes to Christ the babe is Lord of all. Mm. Let me just read um, a little bit of the, the lyrics from that in English. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I wish I could speak Polish, but I cannot. Um, but it starts with infant holy, infant lowly, for his uh, bed a cattle stall, oxen lowing, little knowing Christ the babe is Lord of all. And then it, it goes through and where it climaxes again, it says, Christ the babe is Lord of all. And then it gets quieter and repeats that strain again, Christ the babe is Lord of all. Mm. So it's kind of cool. Just a couple other notes about it. I've got a recording we can include in the show notes. It's from the Warsaw Philharmonic uh, Choir and Orchestra. It's a recording from 2015. And it's it's interesting um, listening to how they play it. It's very upbeat. Um, but as they play it, they also stretch the musicality of it. 
and they have some really slow kind of beautiful strains that come through it. it it's this back and forth dialogue i think between the women's section of the choir and the men's section of the choir um you'll have to listen to it it's it's really cool i like that recording yeah and um this is this is kind of interesting i love music videos as well there's a recording from the tabernacle choir um where they sing it in english but they do a music video and they they pair the music with a, a man that's being uh, released from prison. And I think as you read through the text and you hear the music, it's it's very poignant. Mm. And they do kind of, you know, the slow traditional Christmas sound to it, but that one's really kind of cool as well. Mm. And I think I've got a recording, I don't know if, it, well, maybe it's just for the chanter, but it's uh, James McGilvery where he plays just the simple tune and, yeah, it's it's kind of cool to hear that as well. So, um, music is is great. We our family just loves listening to music and playing music at, at Christmas time. Um, Are you going to be playing your pipes for your family this year? Um, I can. Yeah, I hadn't hadn't planned to do that, but yeah, it's just going to be our immediate family. We're not getting together with anybody else. But yeah, it's a year yeah. of staying home and being cozy with the immediate family, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Scott. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. About Heidi, talk to me about this Christmas song, The Little Drummer Boy. Okay, so the little drummer boy—it's got a, a little bit of an interesting history. And, and we should probably start out by by making sure everybody knows that you've got credentials. You're you're not necessarily oh. a little boy, but you are a drummer. So you're I, you can talk yeah. about this with authority. That's right. I am a drummer, and so I kind of picked this song because the little drummer boy has been one of my favorite Christmas songs my whole life. Tell me why. I don't really know. <laughs> I I liked the the sound of the music itself like that the beat is awesome the music um I just love the music and I think the story of the little drummer boy the fact that you have this little boy who has no money has nothing to give but he can um he can give his talent Hey, and you know, I'm planning to play some audio of the of the song "Little Drummer Boy" on pipes uh, as part of this episode. I'm not Sweet. planning to sing it though, and so oh. with no lyrics, odds are everybody's heard it. But do you have? Are you? Can you do like a 90 second version of what this song is about? What story it tells? Okay, so this is the story of a little boy who has nothing, and he goes to the Christ to see the Christ Child after the baby was born, and with mary's permission he plays um the drums for the baby and for baby jesus and then the christ child smiles at him hey i'm curious heidi since you're a percussionist beyond just being a pipe a pipe band percussionist you've played other percussion instruments you you're familiar with the pit etc what kind of drum would any loving mother allow a child to play for her newborn infant um, because I'm guessing it wasn't a pipe band snare. It could not have been a pipe band snare, right? No, no, it would not be. It would probably be maybe a tenor drum. Yeah, maybe a tenor. 
because those aren't too loud. I could see a bow run. Oh, sure, yeah. Because those aren't very, like, harsh on the ear. Oh, yeah, those are nice to listen to. Like, I can listen to a bar on uh, solo for sure. Like, those are those are fun to listen to for sure all by themselves. Absolutely. Right. I could see a timpani. Oh, yeah, yeah. Though, though a little, a poor little boy probably wasn't pushing around a couple timpani, right? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> those slung around his neck and just dragging him around in the dirt. And if uh, this little boy came from, like, the tropical area maybe like the bahamas i could see him playing um the steel drums oh that's i love that i'm gonna go with that for my mental mental image from now on <laughs> yes i think that would work well awesome so so give me some of the history ab about this song where does this come from why is this a okay so this song was written by Catherine k davis in 1941 and there's a lot of controversy as to where she got the idea. So here's the thoughts. Either uh, she translated the, the music from a Czech carol called The Carol of the Drums. Interesting. Or uh, she arranged the little drummer boy with Harry Simeon. Simone. I don't know how to say his last name. Jack Aaron and Henry Honorati. Or she, the story came to her and she wrote the song um, herself while taking a nap. Okay. So cool. it's one of those three. These are all, and none of them seems uninteresting. Right? So uh, Catherine Davis herself had been writing music since the age of 15. Um and there's another version that she got, like, the rhythm or she got some of the music ideas for this from the French carol Patapan, I think is what oh, it's Oh, yeah, I've heard that one. Right? They're similar. It is a silly song. True, true. Um, so, because you hear that pod rumpa pum pum that Patapan oh, sure, yeah. thing. <laughs> um, so, she wrote it in 1941. And then, and the, oh, this is kind of cool. So the Von Trapp family, the Van, you know, the... The real ones? Yes, the real ones, not the one, you know, not the Sound of Music ones, but the real ones. The real, real ones, yeah. Yeah, so they first recorded this song. Um, and then, I'm trying to remember. You know, I didn't know that there were real Von Trapps until, like, just a year or two ago. Really? Hey, that's not the only embarrassing thing I can tell you, Heidi. That's also another thing is semi Christmas related because narwhals do appear in in uh, what in Elf for sure. Elf. Uh huh. They also I, do they also appear in the old Rankin and Bass uh, Rudolph show? I don't remember if that's. Uh, maybe I don't remember, but they might. Well, I didn't. Th I thought narwhals were mythical creatures until mm, definitely my adult life. Like it was my wife who told me, no, they're real. Her father um, is a, an ichthyologist, so he knows all about ocean animals. And she's like, no, narwhals are a real thing. I was like, yeah, right. They're the unicorns of the water. She's like, nope, they're real animals. So. Um, I, like you, thought that they were fake um, until a few years ago. Oh, well, I, I'm glad to not so. be alone. So the Von Trapps and narwhals were mythical creatures to both of us then. I'm not the right. one. Yeah. Um, okay, so one thing that's kind of interesting about the music it's so you know how I said um, that the little drummer boy played for the baby Jesus and the baby Jesus smiled, right? Yeah. 
So there is a French legend that says that there was a juggler. No way. For um, statue of Lady Mary, and the statue of Lady Mary smiled for the juggler. Oh, okay, now that's that, that that story still makes me chuckle a bit. But I was imagining a juggler like uh, performing for the baby Jesus. Oh. Yeah, I mean, a statue, baby Jesus, they're close. Yeah, okay, okay. So there's a French story that there was a juggler, huh, who played for a statue in the statue's mouth. Right, and so they think that possibly she got the idea for the little, the Christ child smiling at the drummer boy from that legend, that French legend. I see. Where, where was she from? Was she French herself? No, nah, she's from the U.S. Oh, she, she just had heard the story. It's, yeah. Um, okay, so, sorry, back to the Van Trapp family. Yeah. So, they recorded it in 1955, um, but they did change some of the lyrics, because in one of the lyrics, they used the not nice word for the word donkey. How, those Von Trapps, they were, they were always kind of an edgy group, weren't they? No, it wasn't them. They were the ones that changed the lyrics. Oh, I see, I see, I see. She the wrote the original word. Oh, my. Yeah. So they, they, so it's thanks to the Von Trapps that the little drummer boy finally became a family-friendly song. Yes, exactly. Okay, so then in 1957, Henry Honorati rearranged the carol of the drums, which is the other name of it, which is what it was originally called. It was called the Carol of the Drums, um, or of the Drum. And so he rearranged it. And then in 1958, he got his friend Harry Simeon uh, to use his orchestra or whatever. Yeah, I don't know Um, who these people are, but they sound like the kind of guys who would be playing music with, like, uh, Ricky Ricardo. Is that about Yeah, yeah, probably. So, Harry Simeon was a conductor and arranger for Newark, New Jersey, and worked on several Bing Crosby movies. Okay, now this is making sense. Do you think that to some degree the popularity of the song might be that precisely that it was kind of coming out in this, what seems to have been the golden age for modern Christmas music? Yeah, probably. Because so many of our classics harken back precisely to Bing, right? Yeah. I would say most of our well-known Christmas songs come from that era. Yeah, interesting. Around that time. Yeah. So Harry Simeon and Henry Honorati um, rearranged the music, and that is actually what we know today. So their arrangement is what we are familiar with. So they changed it a little bit. So we're familiar with their arrangement. Now, does their arrangement include the Von Trapp family-friendly lyric, or is it, or do they use the original lyric? I'm afraid I don't know it well enough off the top of my head to know for sure. They use the family-friendly version. Mm-hmm. Smart choice. You want to you want to stay applicable, or uh, you want to stay appealing to to all markets. Right. Yeah. See, they say the ox and lamb kept time mm-hmm. instead of the ox and donkey kept time. I see. He changed it to a lamb. You know, that's that's good copy. You know, like, I mean, the image itself, I mean, no offense to donkeys, but lambs are probably a cuter. It's probably going to sell better. That was probably a good idea. Right. Okay, now this part's kind of cool, and it's very applicable to us, James. Are you ready for this? Bring it on. Okay. 
1972, the Pipes and Drums, a military band of the Royal Scots Guard, hit, had a hit version of the carol. I had no idea. Really? Right? I, yeah. I, I'll, I'll see if I can find a recording of it. Maybe we can use that in this episode. There you go. It's been played on the bagpipe since 1972. Wow, I had no idea. I would have imagined that, you know, we were just kind of finagling it into bagpipe repertoire anytime we used it. Um, but, you know, that having a regimental band do it several decades ago kind of makes it, like, official and legit. Like, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, I mean, we probably could compete with it. <laughs> and we should. Right? We're getting ready for a new season. Let's see. Let's work this in there. I think that would be awesome. What is it? It would be a march, right? So we could uh, use this in our MSR. Yeah, this would totally be a march. I think we should do it. 
Okay, I'm I'm so game. Y'all okay. here first, band. Get ready to learn this song for our next year's competition. Yes. I had his hand in it. I'm I'm sure I'm sure Danny, our new pipe major, I'm sure he'll be cool with that. Yeah, I think he'll be fine. He probably doesn't mind us changing the the competition medley on the fly like this, especially yeah. when it's for Christmas music that we'll be playing in July. That'll be perfect. Right. Hey, it's okay to have Christmas in July. Absolutely. Sometimes we need it. So the most popular version that we have um, was filmed for the Bing Crosby television show in 1977, and it's a duet with David Bowie and Bing Crosby. Oh, I am familiar. That's it. Awesome. And then awesome. it's been done a lot by a lot of different people. It's pretty popular. It ain't going away, that's for sure. Nope. It was even done by the Garden Valley Pipe Band just last Christmas. That's true. They're in Provo for the, uh, what they call it? What was that thing called? Is it called Candle Lights? Or candle? candle, yeah, something Candlelight. Yeah, the Candlelight. I do recall I improvised that whole song. <laughs> oh, Carol's by Candlelight, that's what it's called. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, were you were you doing tenor for us on that song, or were you doing snare on that song? I can't remember that. Uh, tenor. Yeah, because you didn't want to be the drummer boy. Right. You were the drummer well, boy. Well, here's the truth, James. So, and I don't know if you want to put this in the thing or not. Uh but what you maybe don't know is why I stopped playing snare. Is it because you were so tired of being called the little drummer boy? Not, not at all. Um, it's because, like Sean, I have dystonia in my left hand. What is with this dystonia just descending upon our, our band? I don't know, but that, that should be good news for the rest of you, because if... It's very rare for people to get, and two of us in the band already have it. The rest of you should be safe. Yeah, as the saying goes, lightning never strikes in the same place three times. Right. I gotta, I gotta give you a. Uh, I'm gonna give you a. Uh, what do you call it? I'm gonna give you a transition here. A. Uh, oh, there's a word for it. A, a tie-in, a transition of kinds. Let me, let me think. Okay. Um, let me think here. Okay, I got it. Now, the little drummer boy, as is implied by the title, he was short. Another thing that's yeah. short is shortbread. I you familiar love... with shortbread, Heidi? Oh, yeah. What good Scottish ancestry person doesn't know what shortbread is? Amen. Right? Uh, tell, tell me what you love about shortbread. It is easy to make. It tastes very good. Um, homemade is far better than store-bought, by the way. Easy to make and easy to eat. That's the truth. That's right. And there's not a ton of sugar. Um, we have put, like, citrus frostings on it, like a lemon or orange frosting or lime. Um, also, what's particularly good is Nutella. Oh, well, that's, I mean, honestly, I would I would eat that on horse biscuits, personally. I, right? I love that stuff. Yeah. Shortbread is amazing, and anybody who tells you that it takes a lot of ingredients and a lot of time to make is lying to you, and they are giving you the wrong recipe. <laughs> Unless it's from Jeff, and then it's correct. Right, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of which, let's uh, let's see how Jeff's doing over in the kitchen. And see right there, we transitioned to Jeff talking from his kitchen. It's going to be so good. Perfect. Hello, bagpipe friends. This is Jeff McClellan. James has asked me to talk you through making Scottish shortbread, which I'm excited to do. I love making shortbread. 
Shortbread, as you may know, is a traditional Scottish treat um, dating back almost a thousand years. So this is really old bread, sort of, really old recipe. Um, it's now famous around the world, and in fact, on January 6th is National Shortbread Day in the United States. So it's a great reason to make some shortbread. Also good for holidays. I'll mention more of that in a minute. Um, it's super easy to make. The traditional recipe is um, one part sugar, two parts butter, and three parts flour. That's all there is, just sugar, butter, flour. Um, the recipe I'm using is slightly adapted from that. It's one cup of sugar, two cups of, of butter, and four cups of flour, so a little bit more on the flour side. Um, I'll miss, also make a couple other adaptations that I'll talk through as we go along. I've already measured out all my ingredients, so that saves us some time here, but I, that took maybe 10, 15 minutes to get everything ready, um, just so you can get a sense of the time on all this. So. You start off with some softened butter, um, a, a pound of butter or two cups of butter. It's four of those sticks, you know, those cubes, um, rectangle cubes that you get in the boxes. So I've softened it just lightly. Um, don't want it too, too runny. And then you add your sugar. Um, traditionally, you'd use white sugar. Um, I like to use brown sugar. I also reduce the sugar a little bit because I'm just trying to generally avoid eating quite so much sugar. So I use two-thirds of a cup instead of a full cup, and I think that's plenty sweet still. Um, and if you've had my um, shortbread at Scottish festivals or whenever I've brought it before, that's what I've used is two-thirds of a cup of brown sugar. Um, and you pack it in. I'm having a hard time getting it out. There we go. Okay, and then you use your blender and you just mix that up um, until it's kind of uh, creamy. Um, so light and fluffy and creamy. So it takes a bit of mixing. Okay, so now you've got your um, butter and your sugar all mixed together to kind of a light, creamy, um, fluffy sort of texture. Um, and at this point, you could just keep it as is. Traditionally, you would just keep it to the three ingredients of butter, sugar, and flour. Um, but you can also spice it up a little bit if you'd like. And uh, so I'm today, I'm gonna add a little bit of flavoring. I've tried almond and maple. You could probably try vanilla. Um, and uh, today I'm gonna do maple. I really like um, the maple flavoring that it adds to it. And I'm gonna also add cinnamon too. And so I'm gonna put a little bit of maple in, a teaspoon of maple. And then I'm also gonna take a teaspoon of cinnamon and put that in. And now I'm gonna mix it up a bit more just to get all the flavors blended together. Okay, so once you've got all your flavors in um, and everything mixed up like you want, then you can add your flour. Um, traditionally, it would just be, um, well, traditionally, originally, shortbread was made with oat flour because that's what they had. Um, but then wheat flour was introduced to Scotland and that um, took over the recipe and they used wheat flour after that. Um, I've tried um, traditional um, oat flour and I've tried wheat flour, both just white and whole wheat, um, and I've tried mixtures of them. Um, my favorite combination, what I usually do, is half white flour and half oat flour. Um, the oat flour gives it a little bit, it makes it a little bit more dense and a little bit more crumbly and adds a, a nice little nutty flavor that I really like. 
Um, so I like how it changes the texture and the flavor a bit by adding the oat flour. For oat flour, I just take oats and you put them in a blender and just blend them up and it makes a nice flour. So I'm going to put in, and I've measured out um, about two and a half cups each of oat flour and white flour. And I'm going to use a bit of that mixed in with the dough and then the rest I'm going to use, I'm going to use most of it mixed in with the dough and then the rest I'm going to use as I need it. So I'm going to take um, and just put it a little bit at a time. So I'm going to put in a little bit of um, oat flour first and then mix that. And once that's mixed in a bit, then I'll add some wheat flour and put some wheat flour in and mix that up or white, I guess. Um, and just keep doing that until it starts to get to the texture you want. And after a while, it's going to get pretty thick and it's going to be maybe too thick for your um, blender. So then, or for your mixer, sorry. So then um, the rest you, I usually do with a, a spatula or a spoon or something. So then once it starts to get really thick, you do that. And just keep adding oat flour and white flour um, and you mix it together. Um, and keep doing that. Um, and then you're going to knead it at some point. And so you want it, and this is a part I'm not really sure about, and I just always guess a little bit. Um, uh, the, the right amount of flour I'm never quite sure on. So I get it usually until it's, it's kneadable but still kind of sticky and wet. And then I knead it for a while and I add flour in as I'm kneading it and it starts to get drier. So when you're kneading your flour, um, if you like to entertain yourself at the same time, you can sing um, a song. Um, and this is a song that Lizzie and I adapted from an old bread song um, called I Need You. And it goes like this. I need you when I'm making yummy bread, you know I need you. When I kick you in the head, you know I need you. I need you. There you go. That's about all that we've adapted, but it's a fun little song. You're welcome to sing it, and you don't need to pay any royalties. Um, I've mixed up everything, and I've got one sheet of cookies in the oven right now. Um, there's, and it, this recipe makes about four dozen depending on how small you cut things right now I cut them so I have 46 actually um, and one cookie sheets in the oven the other cookie sheet I'm just poking holes in the cookies right now and then I'll put them in when the other one's done um, they cook at a really low temperature about 325 degrees and so it takes a while to cook um, it takes about 40 minutes um, for one batch and you want them to you don't want them to get very brown just very lightly browned um, but for me it's usually meant 40 minutes and then I'll often let it go for another five or even ten minutes and just till they just get a little bit of brown in them and they're not very soft um, so um, the shapes of the cookies I'm doing them there are three traditional shapes for cookies. There are petticoat tails 
um, which for petticoat tails, you form the dough into one large circle and then you cut it like you're cutting a pizza into those triangles. And those triangles are apparently like uh, the shape of the fabric they would use to make petticoats. And so they called them petticoat tails, or at least that's one theory for where the name came from. Or you can do traditional round cookies, um, just small rounds. Or you can do fingers. For fingers, you roll the dough out and then you cut it into rectangles, into small rectangles about an inch wide and three inches long-ish. Um, and you call those fingers. That's what I do. I tend to find the rectangles, the fingers are easier to work with. Um, and, uh, and I just roll out one big sheet and I just cut it up. And I'm not really careful when I cut it up um, to make sure that they're all perfectly uniform in size or shape. Um, and my dough often has ragged edges, so some of the ones from the edges aren't really rectangles. They've got kind of a weird shape to them, but it all tastes the same, so I don't mind too much. Um, uh, the, the history of shortbread, it evolved from um, a medieval biscuit bread, um, and eventually they substituted butter for the yeast and that became shortbread. Um, it may have been made as early as about the 1100s, which is nearly a thousand years ago. Um, the word short in the name comes from an old meaning of the word short, which means crumbly, as opposed to long or stretchy. So this crumbly texture is caused by the high butter content. Um, you might think of the word shortening, which also has short in it and is also a high fat thing like butter. Um, then the bread part of the name comes uh, from bakers who they decided to call it bread um, to avoid a tax that was placed on cookies. Um, so it's short bread even though it's really cookies. Um, so it started somewhere around the 1100s um, and about the 1500s Mary Queen of Scots is credited with um, refining the content. She, she didn't do it, her bakers did it, but they um, refined the recipe um, she particularly was fond of the cookies in the shape of petticoat tails, and that was her favorite way of eating them. So while your um, shortbread is cooking, you can clean up, because it always makes a bit of a mess when I do it. Um, for timing, if you're wondering how long it takes, um, I got the ingredients all prepared before I started cooking, and that took maybe 10 minutes to measure everything out, and then actually making it took probably about 20 minutes or so, um, and then it cooks for about 40 minutes. So it's probably about 30 minutes of prep time and about 40 minutes of cook time per cookie sheet. So total you might be looking at about two hours with all the cook time but a lot of that is cook time when you can be doing other things. Okay I'm about to take the first batch out of the oven. It's been cooking for about 40 minutes um, and, uh, and I just checked and it's looking very light brown around the edges which is great. That's just how you want it. It's very very light brown. Um, and so I'm going to pull it out now. It smells very mapley and cinnamony. So this batch um, 
it spread out more than it usually does, probably because I didn't use enough flour um, when I was mixing it in. I'm sure they'll be just fine. They look good and they smell really good. Um, but they did, usually they hold their shape quite well and this time they expanded quite a bit, um, probably because they just didn't have enough flour in there. So now I'm gonna put in the second um, tray and set the timer. for 40 minutes again um, and usually um, usually 40 minutes is about right sometimes I go a little bit longer um, just till, till it starts to just look barely brown um, and they're often pretty soft so I let them cool a little bit on the tray and then put them on a cooling rack as well so you might wonder how you're supposed to use your Scottish shortbread of course you eat it you give it to your friends but there are some traditional things as well um, in Shetland, apparently, it was common traditionally to break, um, I guess, a loaf of, um, of uh, shortbread over the head of the bride as she entered her new home. So if you've got someone getting married, you can make a big chunk of um, shortbread and break it over her head at her reception or something. Um, and then, but the other way that um, it's often used, it's associated with the Scottish celebration of Hogmanay. Hogmanay, I'm not sure how to say that. Um, which is New Year's Eve. And so um, at, on New Year's Eve, you might know for the Scottish people at midnight, they all join hands and they sing Auld Lang Syne um, and at midnight. And then after midnight, um, first footing begins. And the first foot tradition is um, who is the first person to cross your threshold? Um, and that is the first foot of the year. And, uh, and when you do first footing, you go around to people's houses after midnight and you cross into their house and then you give them gifts and they give you treats. Um, and shortbread is often exchanged at that point. So um, on New Year's Eve, which is coming up, you can go awaken, awaken your neighbors and friends after midnight and give them shortbread if they're not already awake. Um, don't do that to me though, because we'll be asleep. But first footing often includes, goes throughout the night and goes into the next day. So you're welcome to come to my house on New Year's Day if you'd like and bring me shortbread, but don't come in the middle of the night. Um, and that's Scottish shortbread. It's, uh, it's fun to make. It's easy to make. I'm not a baker. I, I make two things. I make shortbread and I make waffles. That's it. I, don't, I really don't know what I'm doing in the kitchen. And I'm sure I make lots of mistakes in my shortbread making. Um, but it tastes good and that's what matters. Thanks for joining. And let me just say, Erin, uh, happy Yuletide. Thank you. You too. Thank you. <laughs> and to any listening, <laughs> um, you are, I, 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 I can't keep track of you, you, you globetrotter. Are you in, oh, Ari yeah. you're in Arizona, right? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, we moved back down to Arizona. That's where my husband grew up and lived and where we lived uh, right after we got married. Uh, we had a stint in Washington State for mm -hmm. about a year. Um, I came back to Arizona with a little baby, <laughs> and yeah. yeah, so went from rainy to very sunny. Yeah, never rainy. <laughs> we like the polar opposites. <laughs> yeah, living in, in worlds of extremes, right? Yes. <laughs> and you, you grew up in California, so it's not like you're going to be pining for a white Christmas anyway, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm used to Christmas for me was uh, Santa Ana winds. So living huh. in Southern California, always, it was always like dust stormy, windy on Thanksgiving and Christmas. Mm. And we'd have this 
we had this huge avocado tree that um, nobody had trimmed in its lifetime, so it was giant. And mm. so the winds would come, these hot, sandy, icky winds would come, and then all these avocados would just be falling from the oh, sky. Oh, no, that sounds <laughs> you'd dangerous. Have watch, <laughs> you'd have to watch out. <laughs> but then we'd have, we'd have wheelbarrows full of avocados. Oh, that sounds and, like heaven. And I'm so... <laughs> I wish I could go back in time, because at the time, when I was younger... I didn't know any better, and I wasn't a fan of avocados. I, I, I wasn't now. either when I was a kid. I also was ignorant. Yeah. yeah it's like Nobody ever put it on toast. Buttery <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah. You have to think about it as butter, and it's a lot better. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So, if, if only. And it, we were living in, and this it was like a farmhouse that we rented, and it was in the middle of a lemon orchard. And, again, wow. if we go back in time and just, like... <laughs> make all this amazing food <laughs> right just like reach out your window and pluck some fresh exactly. produce exactly exactly so, yeah i got uh it was funny when the first the first time we moved to utah i was about 12 and um and things had seasons <laughs> was, you know, seasonal. Why is outside food changing? Was, yeah and then food was seasonal and then we yeah. know it was just like the funniest thing and like oh that's and we're like, wait, what? Avocados <laughs> don't just fall from the sky in Christmas? <laughs> so, you know. I bought it here two months ago. What do you mean they're all gone? Yeah. <laughs> Man. So so avocado trees, I guess, when I was imagining a giant avocado tree, I was thinking that like maybe it was like many, many sort of fruit producing trees that like if you let them grow too much, then they stop producing fruit. Sounds like that's not the case, huh? Yeah. No, this thing was huge. I'm trying to remember if it was like a... It was like bacon or hoss. I think it was a hoss. Hmm. It was like a couple different kinds. Um, yeah, I try to think how, how tall it was. It was taller than our house, and it was a we had an old two-story Victorian. It was like 120 years old. Wow. Um, old farmhouse. So, yeah, kind of a beautiful setting. You had a cool mind. childhood, Aaron. <laughs> yeah. Sheesh. <laughs> so, so with Arizona being the place now, I mean, like, I'm just – so like this being this tis the season after all you know so like i think sort of like the popular image for christmasy time right is like snow falling and stuff like that but that's not your experience as a child certainly and certainly not your experience now either um and any any i mean aside from dodging avocados any unique or cool uh christmasy (laughs) traditions that you uh carried on from your childhood that you have now you've got a little kid anything you're doing like that you know yeah, so she, yeah, she's had her first Christmas, but she was a month old, so she didn't really, mm. <laughs> you know, it was kind of... <laughs> Just snuck in there. Yeah, she didn't really have any reaction. So now I'm excited because she's she's a lot more, you know, uh, she's going to be one um, in actually a couple of weeks or so. So um, I'm really excited because this is going to be a fun one. Yeah. So, um, but let's see. I think we'd have... Um, Every Christmas Eve, right before we went to bed, we'd open one present. And, of course, it was pajamas. And so ah, yes, always, classic. Yeah. That was our, like, socks or pajamas kind of thing. Um, and then and then Christmas morning. <laughs> um, so, growing up, my dad would always make breakfast. He's, like, the breakfast guy. That's what he cooked. And did, was, was like, there, was it, like, of... you can't open presents until after breakfast? Or was it, like, go crazy on the presents and then go okay. have breakfast? So, it was the presents first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Go crazy on the presents and then eat. But I kind of, <laughs> it was years and years. It was, like, probably my last years at home um, uh, before 
um, getting married and everything that mm-hmm. that I was like, you know what? Can we can we change something? Can we have breakfast first? <laughs> you start I'm getting like more, <laughs> yeah. And then we're just like we're just like rummaging through our 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 sock, you know, our stocking, right? And trying to find breakfast there, with, with chocolate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> by the time breakfast comes, kind of. You're kind of full and kind of sick. Yeah, the day is kind of a bust at that point. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'm just starving. And so we did it once, and everyone's like, oh, that was so good. Why didn't we do this before? This is better. <laughs> like, this is so much like, better. You know, as, a, as a kid, I can see, like, who cares about breakfast? I yeah. want my toys. Well, and aside like, from that, oh. stocking breakfast, yeah, that's yeah. the best. <laughs> We'd have an orange in there. That would be Okay, nod to health, okay. But the rest would be just chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and how many of you, like, actually took the trouble to peel and eat an orange, right? That got saved yeah. for, that was, like, weeks later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's true. That's, uh, that's, that's awesome. I, I, was, it, was it, like, a crack of dawn kind of thing when you were a kid? Like, was there a um, limit to how early you could get your parents up? Well, we would, we would have to get dressed, make our bed. Um, so it wouldn't be the the pajama thing. We'd have to dress up because we would video it. Like, oh, yeah, have sure. the camcorder out and video and us walking down the stairs or wherever and then coming to the tree. Yeah. Um, and so it, it typically, it was early, but it wasn't like we, us kids weren't just like, mom and dad, wake up. They were usually awake and then getting everything ready and then get dressed, make your bed brush your hair <laughs> so had to get camera ready yeah <laughs> wait wait till the sun came up to get a little of that nice diffused light through the windows right so yeah it good. Yeah. yeah but us kids would be up you know i'd yeah. be up going like just waiting yeah just like, going nuts uh... yeah. <laughs> did you did you share rooms with your siblings so you had somebody else to go crazy with or did you just have to sit in solitude yeah, yeah, we usually shared, like, yeah. it, it was typically, like, us girls, it was, there was three of us girls, and then, um, our older brother, and so... Oh, yeah, the volleyball um, star. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so we'd, and, uh, a lot of times, Casey, my brother, he'd be the one that would, like, hey, girl, like, he'd come in, and he'd shake our beds, and yeah. go, earthquake! <laughs> that was our thing in California. Yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> that's, that's, it's a bit like shouting <laughs> fire in a crowded theater in California. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... So he was actually, I remember multiple times where he was the first one up and he was excited and we're yeah. like, oh, what? Oh, okay. <laughs> and he'd wake us up, earthquake. That's fun. Well, that's, what about your husband? Does he have similar traditions? Are you both discovering new things and kind of making a new uh, meld of the two, the two sets of traditions or? Yeah, kind of, kind of mixing them. Um, trying to think. Uh, He's oh, a lizard no. scientist, right? Yes, he is. Cool job. <laughs> yeah, so he, he for a living, he takes care of lizards and uh, reptiles, snakes, um, um, some insects, um, invertebrates. I don't know all the names for him. I mean, <laughs> yeah, let's get let's get some Latin out of the and, old trunk amphibians, here. Amphibians, mm. amphibians, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and he likes to correct everybody on whenever there's like a TV show when someone says. Oh, snakes are poisonous. He's like, ugh, they're venomous. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> if you bite something, then that's, and it, oh, it's, the sick, distinction. it's poisonous. Yes, it, I it see. It bites you. Ah. It's <laughs> so every time okay. somebody says something like that, I look at him, I just go, whoop, and he's like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> so does, did, is this, a, is this a, the destination on his path was like long, like was he like a dinosaur kid, you know, like was this bound oh, yeah. to happen? 
Oh yeah, he gotcha. would he would go out and um, like collect ants and had like mm. ant farms, and then he would he would yeah, I was always like curious about critters and bugs, and then he um, he was kind of a, a quiet kid, but then he liked he liked the reaction. He says that um, he would if he'd have something crazy or funny, you know some crazy yeah a scary animal. bug or snake yeah or in his hands yeah and he would get this cool reaction people would go oh cool and then he could like you know have conversation about oh yeah isn't this cool i'm cool a, a segue to con- yeah gotcha. yeah and he and he doesn't like he doesn't like to um to like scare people with it like hey look at this and see that's where i thought you were going i thought not. that that was the reaction he would enjoy as a child like be one oh, of those terrible no. ter- one of those terrible annoying kids who'd like run into the classroom with a snake and be like no. thrusting it in people's faces and stuff no because he, he likes the critters, and he wants people to like them. So he's like, I don't oh. like to do that because then it turns them off to it. And then yeah. they're like, ah. He's like, no, look how cool they are. Mm-hmm. You know, let's get rid of the stereotype. And so um, he's a good he's a good advocate mm-hmm. for... Uh, is that the word? <laughs> yeah, that's the word. Yeah. 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 He's... Yeah. For lesser loved creatures. <laughs> Yeah. I, I can relate to that. That's my dad wasn't a, a bug or or lizard scientist by trade, but he definitely was passionate about it. And uh, I know that uh-huh. they're like the first time he asked my mom on a date, it was if she, he asked her if she wanted to go out to the desert looking for bugs, uh- and she <laughs> thought he was joking, so she was like all sarcastic about it, and he was super dejected, and like it took oh. a while to get the courage to ask her out again and stuff. Oh my goodness! <laughs> but like we've got pictures of me when I was a baby in our little apartment holding his tarantulas and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And he always had. Pets and stuff, and we'd go release salamanders into the wild and stuff. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. He likes to go, um, um, go out and see when the snakes come out. So there's like certain times of day or after rain or something like that where mm. you go herping. It's called. And so, herping. Yeah. That's so a herping. silly word. <laughs> so herping. So it's, it, it comes from herptology. Okay, that makes sense. But I'm just reptiles. imagining like how much worse would it have been if my dad had asked my mom, "You want to go herping?" Yeah. Like, what the heck? <laughs> Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, so, um, <laughs> so that's where, you know, he'll like to drive around, and then there'll be, sometimes there'll be snakes out on the, on yeah. the road. And oh, yeah. See, so, yeah. Has, has he ever, has he ever been around when the Mormon crickets do their circadian rhythm and, and come out in Utah and cover the roads? I I don't think that's so. That's an experience. I, I think he's been up there that, yeah. that much, so, wow. I, well, maybe someday. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this, of course, is uh, the topic of the podcast today is your husband and bugs yes, and lizards. And so bugs. <laughs> let's carry on. With Merry that. Christmas. <laughs> no, yeah, but, but, but yeah, Christmassy stuff. Like, what about like dinner before? Is there anything that you're pulling in from your husband's side or is it just you get to run the show at this point? No, yeah. Um, yeah, so we usually get together um, with his family. His family is all uh, mostly all still here in Arizona. Yeah, a bunch of Arizonians. And, yeah, they're like old pioneer mm-hmm. um, pioneer stock and so um we usually get together for like christmas eve kind of a christmas eve dinner thing and um i think i think the last one that we had together before we moved um we did like mexican food which is like my favorite oh awesome i would love to have that tradition that was good i like that forget the ham yeah get some tacos in there that's that's (laughs) way better (laughs) so that's yeah that's pretty fun yeah beautiful yeah yeah okay here's a connection if you, if you ever need one to justify it. Okay. The, the history is maybe kind of cloudy because not everything ever gets perfectly documented. But are you familiar with, with Tacos al Pastor? 
Yes, that's like my Like street thing. tacos, right? They're, they're the best, yeah. right? So that, that phrase in Spanish, al pastor, is like um, of the shepherds, right? Like these are oh, like yeah, shepherd pastor. tacos. Yeah, pastoral. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Pastoral, yeah. So the, 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 the like um, hazy history of how tacos even got into Mexico is that it was... Um, Oh now I'm now I'm gonna I'm gonna blank on the the precise region in the eastern part of in the eastern hemisphere, but there was an influx of immigration in I couldn't tell you what century. Okay, this is hazy history given by a, a person who does not understand it. But I've launched into this, so I'm gonna keep going. A long, long time ago, people from east of Mexico came to Mexico, nice. and they brought with them this this tip this like standard way of just like cooking lamb meat you know, sheep meat and putting it into flatbread and eating that, right? It was a way for shepherds to eat food while they were out taking care of their flocks on, you know, for months on end. Yeah, travel food. Yeah, exactly. It's travel food. And, you know, not being able to find a lot of sheep in Mexico, it was more typical to start using uh, pork and and beef. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, that's the the hazy history of how tacos got in. So you want to make a Christmas connection, you know, to Mexican food. Yes. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> you can imagine when the when those angels announced the birth of the baby to the shepherds, <laughs> they were probably eating tacos oh, at the time. This is awesome. <laughs> oh, I love that. Well, there you go. Justified. We should all be eating tacos on Christmas Eve. <laughs> this ham is an abomination. <laughs> awesome. That's a good story. Thanks for the story. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yes. Now, now maybe, and maybe we can save, maybe we can make a graceful save here by tying this over to uh, the weird history of mandolins, or the, I shouldn't say weird, the unexpected history of mandolins. When we talked before, Aaron, we talked about how you play mandolin, uh-huh. and, uh, and you were very kind recently to help me out with a, a little collaboration, uh, a, an arrangement. All right, so speaking of Christmas, my favorite Christmas episode last year was the one, because we did like six of them, just because uh-huh. I get excited about the holidays, um, was the one with... With uh, Timothy Cummings, we were talking about his Christmas collection. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, just whacked my mic stand. Timothy Cummings has another collection called the Piper's Hymnal, in which he has this really old tune called Shalom, which can be played as a round. And I was like, oh, I I only have one set of bagpipes. So I I asked you, I was like, hey, do you want to do something with this? And you were like, yeah. So you busted out your mandolin, which you're very good at playing, and your... Great big mandolin? Is it a bazooka? What do you what do you call uh, this thing? It's it's a citern. It's a citern. It's not yeah. a bazooki, but similar to a bazooki. Yeah. Is that so what? yeah, you'd see that. So in um a lot of like Irish and uh, Scottish folk like trad music, mm-hmm. um you'll see either bazookis um or citerns. Mm-hmm. And I got turned on to citern after watching um uh Ross Ainsley. Mm-hmm. Um he had there was a video online where I could see like up close I was like what is that I'm like wait that's not a bazooka that's not an octave mandolin like what is that there's there's 10 strings there's five courses not four mm. and so um boy was Ross playing it? it he was being accompanied yeah. by one right he no, was playing, he was playing it? it I yeah. didn't realize that Ross Ainsley played one yeah he plays like at, yeah they all like him and um um Allie Hudson mm-hmm. they they play all that. They time. just trade stuff around. Really good. Yeah. See, I've, just, I like, watch swap. some of their videos, but I also I'm, I listen more than I watch, and so I've always just kind of assumed that like you know Ross is always going to be on the small pipes, and and you know somebody's yeah. playing along with him. So I guess most of the videos, if not all that I've seen, he's always on pipes. So I, I didn't even realize that they were just trading stuff. That's that only makes their music even cooler. That's yeah. so that's so awesome. Yeah. So I was like, what is that? And it was really cool because it was really drone. It was really drone like. Yeah. And, yeah. And um, I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. Um, For someone who's into so, piping, that uh, drones yeah. are a draw. Yeah. yeah. I, was, I was into. I was playing. Um, 
I was playing pipes at the time that I discovered that because I was getting into, you know, I was looking, searching Ross Ainsley mm-hmm. and um, I'm like, oh, this trad stuff where you have uh, more, you know, pipes with stringed instruments and um, I ran across that and I had a, I think, I think at the time I had got, I gotten a um, octave mandolin and octave mandolins, if you play a mandolin, it, you know, it's really small, mm-hmm. um, but it kind of needs to be small for, for the, um, this kind of how it's tuned and the scale and everything. Mm. It's kind of a stretch still, you know, you have to have a, you know, kind of a, a big stretch. Oh, sure. Yeah. And so, and so once you take that and blow it up, so it's unlike where guitar, you don't have to go up to the seventh fret to get your octave, but mm-hmm. mandolin you do. So when you're playing... When you're playing the octave mandolin, it's like such a handful. It's like playing. It's like the difference between violin and cello. Where yeah, but you're still trying similar, to play the cello like yeah. a violin. Yeah, so you have to like shift just to play in mm. one. You have to play multiple positions just to play a single scale. You need you need Rachmaninoff so, hands for. Yeah. For, oh for my the gosh. <laughs> so, I mean, I have I have you know I'm a tall person, got long fingers, and I still was just like, oh my gosh, like I love playing this octave mandolin, but. Oh, it was just so uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, oh. And so I ended up my I ended up discovering the Citroen at that time and I'm like, okay, I'm selling this and buying one of those mm-hmm. <laughs> instead. Mm-hmm. So just how it's tuned, um, it's a little bit um a little bit more um ergonomic for my hands. Um yeah. And and so it's it's got the five courses, so like a like a like a banjo, I guess. What else um, has five yeah, but so it's got ten strings, right? Yeah, so so courses wise, there's five courses because strings there's ten, but like each course has two strings, um, so they're doubled up. They're um, do they and do they play an octave apart each set of strings or are only, they actually they're they're double only the lowest bass note is oh. is a split, um, and um, uh, yeah, so and it's tuned odd. It's it's tuned um one five one five one however you want it tuned so if it's like the one i have i got it made um to be in the key of g so then i can play g capo to a and so if i'm playing in uh, g it's g d g d g so very okay. open ringy um and um so like if we were going to imagine this like translate it to a bagpipe chanter it would be like if it was playing uh-huh. like uh lot or, or <laughs> la, like a e a E A yes. right just just yes. over it's like it, you just got a whole bunch of A's and E's every other one yeah. and then you're putting your fingers on to change the notes in between yeah and it's really it's it's a fun instrument because you can kind of you know once you find a little scale you can play a bunch of stuff and it just you know it I don't know it kind of makes me think of the mountain dulcimer that's exactly what I was gonna ask yeah. I was gonna say is it like a dulcimer in that whatever yeah. you do it sounds nice yeah and so like you have you have your chromatic scale with your with your frets but because of the ringing you're kind of limited to these notes and but it makes you be really creative and it just sounds really cool everything so i've written more tunes on the citern than any other instrument Mm. (laughs) which is and but you just picked it up very recently yeah (laughs) but you've been playing um, mandolin for such a long time yeah and so so you know playing i'd you know grown up playing mandolin guitar and um and fiddle and all these other instruments and so you know it was just like okay here's a fretted instrument and here's my new scale mm. and it was just so fun exploring with it and and writing pipe tunes so a lot of the tunes i've written i think except for like one tune 
that does not work on pipes. It has uh, a couple notes or um, that it goes below the scale. But um, most of the tunes, I'm like, oh, wait, I can write some pipe stuff. So mm-hmm. um, so that's been really fun. And it's, <laughs> it's funner to write... Uh, pipe tunes on that because I'm better at playing that than the pipes. <laughs> so I'm trying sure, to learn how sure. to play on the pipes now. I'm like, oh, here's this cool song. I'm like, oh, it's it's kind of hard. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> like, it's, uh, it, I'm not good enough. <laughs> Eric Avonhouse has told me that before. That like some of the tunes he writes, he's not really proficient at yeah. playing. He just, but yeah. he writes them. Then he writes great tunes. Yeah. Just can't play all of them. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Was, uh, like if I could send this to. Was it Lincoln? Oh, yeah, Lincoln he, Hilton. He, he can handle this, but I right. can't. But it's really cool. Like, yeah. I made it. Like, <laughs> yeah. So so do you think that... I, I've, I've thought about this before because I feel like... like I personally feel super drawn to the Clawhammer banjo. I love the mm-hmm. way that, that playing style sounds. And it's also yeah. super droney. And I've wondered, yeah. like, is there something in the DNA of a person that makes them like droney music? Or is it just that yeah. we get used to bagpipes first and therefore have this openness to droniness? Exactly. Well... You know, like, I know, as I've been looking into, like, the history of these instruments, mm-hmm. like the sittern, mandolin, and even, like, bagpipes, it seems like a lot of that older music just happens to be that. Maybe it's because the scale is limited, there's only a few, few strings or something like that. I don't mm. know, but, like, it seems like that older stuff has that. So it's, like, even before just, like, listening to Scottish bagpiping, I don't know. It's, like... You know, I, know. <laughs> I should, if I if I'd known, I'd have done a little research and figured out who it was. But I know that I've come across like a supposed quote, at least from like somebody significant in Roman history. I want to mm-hmm. say Caesar, but you know, uh-huh. like of course I do, right? Probably wasn't yeah. Caesar. Um, who was it who did those? Who who was it who did those? Uh, the meditations. It was uh, was it Marcus Aurelius? Oh, I don't um, know. It was somebody anyway. Yeah. So, so once again, let me just give you a, a real great history lesson here. Yeah. There was some person <laughs> from a long time ago near the Mediterranean Sea uh, who was uh, supposedly quoted as having said something about like how great it was to add an additional pipe, right? Because like uh-huh. when they in these in these old like Roman documents when they refer to pipe playing, sometimes you hear them talk about playing on the pipes and then separately uh-huh. talk about playing on the pipes with a bag. Right. Mm -hmm. And the idea was and somebody was talking about how what a great idea it was to add an additional pipe to the bag so that you never had to uh, deal with the unpleasantness of the music ceasing. So it was like Uh like the it was like the pop Uh culture of the time valued continuous nonstop sound from the musician. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that was with the popular music at the time. And so I I wonder, Uh you know, was is it just like because like I've tried playing bagpipes with other types of musicians uh-huh. and sometimes um folks who are used to more standard modern western music have a really hard time getting around the drone you know because it's like yeah how do i do a chord change if you're still playing this one note and it's yeah. like to some degree you have to ignore it you know yeah. you just and just do it anyway <laughs> yeah and then arranging like i'm so yeah. used to like yeah. going okay and then you play a you play a break and then i play Blake. You yeah know, like, and then go wait but you have to keep going. Okay, wait. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's different. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I don't know, but I do wonder, like, I'm thinking like that style, whatever, you know, the bazooki stuff, the, mm-hmm. you know, the citron stuff, the maybe even like hurdy-gurdies and their predecessors yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and bagpipes all together. Maybe they're all coming out of this tradition, maybe even pipe organ music. I don't know. Maybe it's all coming from this uh-huh. like preference for continuous sound. Like that was considered a, vir- considered a virtue. So it make, makes sense that the evolution of, of like, 
popular music goes to guitar, like electric guitars and amps and just, mm. you know, like, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, we don't want that. Sound, yeah. We right? don't want it to stop. Maybe, yeah. maybe there's something in human nature there. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking like also like, like chanting music as mm. well, like old, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's something, I don't know if, yeah, like Gregorian chant and yep. before that, it's just, I, I mean, yeah, there, there is the physical like response whenever I, you know, with bagpipes, you can just like, it like resonates in your body. Mm-hmm. Like it does. Sound. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, hmm. I don't know. It's, it's just enchanting. It's just like, maybe, I mean, it really is like the first time I really listened to a P Brook, mm-hmm. um, was, um, it was a Gordon Duncan. It was on one of his albums and I'm, can't remember which what it which one it was um mix something i'm sure (laughs) mix something i'm sure yeah you're probably right mix something of green something i think it was yeah oh was that it okay (laughs) i'm just using the naming conventions for gordon duncan songs yes yes anyway so like first i was like okay you know um I'll check it out. And at first it was a little confusing. I'm trying to like listen to it. So I'm like closing my eyes, trying to like follow it. And it was just like, it like got me into the zone. Mm. I was just relaxed. And I know people talk about what they hate or, or love P. Brooke. Yeah. And I feel like it's a, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like medicinal. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's not just for like pleasure. It's actually, it's like, it's supposed to, I feel like it's supposed to take you somewhere. Mm. And if you're not into that, then it's, it's not really, you gotta be a willing participant, right? Yeah. yeah. It, it's just like, it's, it's enjoyed by kind of being in a meditative, mm-hmm. like calm state. I don't know that for me, that's how it is. That makes sense. Of, Have you ever watched yeah. whirling dervishes do their thing? Yes. I, I feel like that's them. the that's like the physical manifestation of how I feel when I if I can get if I can get into that zone either listening to yeah. Peabrook or or even playing small pipes if it's just playing something simple where you can kind of like uh-huh. the sound can fill up the space that you're in, you know? You yes. can kind of like just settle into it. Yeah. I feel like I've got a little whirling dervish inside my brain when that happens. <laughs> I love that. I got to see some um Turkish dancers uh when I was in Europe doing folk Oh yeah, folk was that tour? was that with the oh um with the I want I was good, I was about to say Michael McLean that's not the right guy who's the <laughs> who's the guy at BYU the folk guy um, at BYU Mark Gesslison. yeah Mark Gesslison. is that yeah, was that yeah. were you with his group at the time yeah so I was with the uh, international folk dance ensemble and we got a we in in Europe they have to have a live band and so that's why back early in the day when BYU was doing their folk dance tours, they had to have live musicians, which mm. is so cool. Cause like you need us. So we get to go travel with <laughs> you. <laughs> and so, um, um, we got to go over to, I think it was in Croatia that I got to mm. watch them. We were touring with like, um, a, a Chinese group, mm. a, a Turkish group, um, a couple of Portuguese groups, um, those are the ones I remember the most. Mm-hmm. Um, Portugal, like the Portuguese group was cool because they had accordions and mandolins and bagpipes. So I was like, what the heck? This all is your, awesome. I no all your favorite stuff. <laughs> yeah, all my favorite things. Just, it's like the <laughs> island of misfit instruments. Exactly. <laughs> throw, the, say, like, throw all this stuff in Portugal and then they're like, oh, we'll do something with this. <laughs> yeah. And here's a banjo. We need to introduce you to the right, banjo. Exactly. And then you're set. <laughs> but we got to see. I remember one, uh, at one point I was able to, 
you know, because we'll be busy doing this and that and not always get to see the other acts. And so mm. um, for this, it was like our last last few shows. Um, I got to just come out and watch the Turkish group. And not only was this Turkish guitar, I'm not sure what it is. I need to look into that. But this Turkish guitar player was like crazy. It was so cool. Mm. And then the guys started dancing and it was it was the coolest thing. Um, yeah, so that was awesome to be able to see in person. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there was something else I was thinking. Oh, well, okay. Think, think about it. I'll, I'll play this. Yeah. Let's, I'll insert right here. I'll insert the track that we made, the, the one that we oh, did. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. after we'd played it, and well, after we'd kind of put it together, then you started telling me about the origins of the mandolin. And mm-hmm. you were like, oh, it's great that we've got mandolin and pipes playing together because, like, maybe they've played together before. And I was like, what are yeah. you talking about? about that Aaron what is what is that what's what's going on there yeah so so mandolin um I I had a cool teacher um well I have had lots of cool teachers but um uh, when I studied classical mandolin uh, my teacher Evan Marshall um taught me a bunch about was Evan Marshall the guy who did Ave Maria like as if it was like three mandolins but it was just him playing the one I that video is ingrained in my brain that was amazing Oh, yeah. I'll put a link to that YouTube video in the, sh- in the show notes if anybody wants to see. It was really cool. Yeah, he's awesome. He's a, a virtuoso, totally. It was, like, amazing to be able to take lessons from him. I was like, my mind was blown all the time. But, um, but he was telling me, kind of, he got me into uh, learning about 
mandolin history and I have a classical mandolin history book that I bought. Like I have this book on my shelf. Nerd. <laughs> like, so, but, um, but yeah, I was kind of like, um, just re-looking over some stuff and, um, it looks like, so it comes from, uh, tracking, trying to track the genealogy back. Well, let me just there say was, real quick, Aaron, if you're at all nervous about getting the history right, I've set the bar very, very low for yeah. you. So don't worry, no matter what, you're going to be call it stories. There you go. It's stories, <laughs> not history. Yeah. Gotcha. So, um, so like there's, uh, in the, so I have like in seventh century AD, there's like these folk lutes. And so lutes are just kind of like, sounds like a kind of a generic term for, um, a, a chordophone, so something that has strings and it has a, a body and it goes over a hole and you pluck it, kind of just real generic. So requirements like to get into the loot family are pretty low. Yeah, like it's, it's yeah, it's more of like a category kind of thing. Gotcha. Um, and, um, and so there was, so we have um, Near East and like Egyptian um, versions of this that they call the oud and actually in arabic the oud is it means wood i guess oh. and so it's like a wooden stringed thing gotcha. um and then um it says it got from those kinds of instruments came to venice um through the trade and like crusaders and all that stuff so that came from the eastern um to to Europe, mm -hmm. and then from there, in Venice and Italy, that's where it like it boomed, and that it, it evolved, and you got um, uh, the Neapolitan mandolin, mm. um, which is more like that's like kind of what we play now, the tuning and everything. Um, but it's interesting; I didn't know it until just like yesterday. I was doing a little more research that um, there was an Italian, like the earlier mandolin before the neapolitan mandolin was like the mandor the mandola or not mandola man mandorla mandalorian mandorla. i think is the way it's pronounced <laughs> my, there's, my husband this there's a cosplay like, opportunity <laughs> my husband's like uh, um actually it was known that the mandalorian played an ancient lute and that's where it got its name yeah, there <laughs> so you that go. was his history actually there you go <laughs> But this this word man, man uh, mandorla is actually almond in Italian, which makes sense because it's like oh, it's almond like almond shaped, shaped. yeah, 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 that yeah. Makes I was sense. like, oh my god, okay, yeah, I I'm finally digging it. know what it means. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> so there's this like travel from um, east, and it's even like it says like Egypt and you know coming up to Europe, kind of like the bagpipes and the chanter and stuff like that. So it's yeah. like it's this like interesting um yeah it has this long lineage um but uh that's so exciting it makes me think of like like where like i get excited about sort of like bluegrassy folksy music mm -hmm. like very is, is americana the right word i'm not sure there's yeah, but yeah. like the 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 idea of a transatlantic crossing of music, not just of yes. people, gets me real excited, you know, and thinking yes. about, like, Appalachia and where, like, oh, this is European music, but it, like, becomes American music and, like, how interesting yeah. that all is. I'm just thinking, like, well, that's not the first time music has moved across the globe, you know, and so it's exciting yeah. to think about this, like, this other movement from uh, from the Eastern Hemisphere into Europe that yeah. happened long before that, you know. 
Yeah, and and um, with the citron, it's kind of a, cit- a similar thing. And I gave, um, and I learned that citron is again more of a category, mm. um, and that kind of came across from like Greece. And I mean, the the bazooki is also Greek, and that's played heavily in Ireland. As Easily well. the funnest of all of these instruments yeah. to say. I know. I'm like, Bazook, what are you talking about? Some <laughs> firepower? Right, it's like, a, oh, it's a, <laughs> no, this awesome late 80s action movie where Arnold Schwarzenegger had a bazooki. Yeah. <laughs> Going to the airport, if they ask you what's in the some loot instrument. Yeah, don't say, say it's bazooki. a bazooki. <laughs> um, Speaking yeah. of which, I don't know if anybody else will have had a similar experience, but I have traveled with my small pipes several times just for fun like like if i'm going on a work trip i'll take my small pipes and just just so i can play them in the hotel or something you know yeah uh, not in the hotel i did that once at, at a park near the hotel usually yeah. is what ends up happening but yeah. um i've never made it through airport security like it just looks too suspicious a bunch of sticks <laughs> yeah. i guess but i even had a bagpipe maker i bought plans for small pipes from him because i wanted to look at the uh-huh. dimensions and the plans got held up in shipping because, yeah. like, they thought it was like plans to make a pipe bomb or something. Bomb. Yeah, yeah. So we 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 play in a dangerous industry, friends. The between bagpipes and bazookies. <laughs> I I remember reading on some. I think it was the Bob Dunshire forum. Someone talking about practicing their their chanter, their practice chanter in their car, mm. and some cops like, "Hey, what do you got there? Thinking it's like some kind of bomb?" <laughs> it's or a something bong, like yeah. That. <laughs> and he's like, "No, no, really. Like, here, I'll play you a song on it. <laughs> I swear it's an instrument." <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so yeah, so that's what I, when we did the the shalom um, arrangement and recording. I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh, this will be first of all." I I had this turn made because I want to play with like small pipes. Oh yeah, so it's like customed up, time. right? Yeah. So I had I I had a guy um, uh, in Maine build it for me, and I got to pick all my woods. I finally got to like, oh, I want cherry, you know, a rosewood back and sides, which is, mm-hmm. and then a cedar top, which I think is like the perfect com- combination of warmth and. And was that oh. I, and see, like you're you're a luthier, so I don't I don't know. But is that is that yeah. largely um, cosmetic, or is it almost entirely because of how it sounds? So the wood, um, so for the you know the back and um, the back and top are the most important, um, and those for yeah the rosewood is um, gives a lot of kick and volume. It's a little more rigid, hmm. um, and then the top. Usually you go, like, you see a lot of spruce, like, mandolins have spruce tops. They're very bright, but I like cedar. It's bright, really bright and sound, right, is what you're saying, right? Yes. I yeah, see. bright and sound, yeah. And, um, yeah, after having um, worked at Cordoba building some classical guitars, my favorite guitar was the cedar top. Hmm. It was the Rodriguez, and it was just so nice and warm, and I like that dark. It kind of has a darkish sound to it, and so that, mic that works perfectly. I want that. Again, it has that... I don't know what I'm recalling. It's like this this sound that I assume is this old human mm. origin of music that mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know that I that I look for. But um, yeah, so I was excited to put that with your small pipes. I'm like, okay, I gotta get the citron, and then mm-hmm. I'm like, well, doing a round, we need another voice. I was think, you know, we're thinking of adding actual voices, but I was yeah. like, oh wait, I got mandolin. I mean, it's like a it's like a cousin to the uh-huh, citron. Uh-huh. It's just it's the same tone wise. Like tonally, it's got the double string. It's got, oh, it's got that like eastern, twingy, 
um, plinkiness that's, mm-hmm. um, that just matches really well. And so, um, yeah, so put that in and I, I, I don't know. I, I really like, I really like the song if I say so myself. Uh, yeah. so, I hope so. <laughs> I, mean, I, like, <laughs> I, I wish that I knew more about it. Like, like Timothy does put like information about the tunes into his collections, which is part of what's so great about the collections. Let me just do another quick plug because they, they are a lot yeah. of fun. Cause you can, you can basically, you can play music from these collections, but they're also fun just to read. Honestly, uh-huh. it's been a common experience for me to sit down with one of these collections and open it up and think I'm going to find a few new tunes. And I end up just reading for a half hour instead yeah. of playing music. But there's not a lot of info on this one. It just says it's it's called Shalom. It's it's this traditional tune from Israel-ish, probably. And that's, you know, that's kind of the way it is with a lot of folk tunes, of yeah. course. That's, yeah. Somebody found a rock that had notes written on the back of it or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I wish I knew more about it, but it's a cool tune for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you... How did you, okay, now I'm trying to find a good transition here. Um, yeah. <laughs> pre, Pre-Bagpipes, or in, when I when I met you because of Bagpipes, you were playing with Molly in the Mineshaft. Yeah. Speaking of Mark Gesslison, his yes. daughter had previously played with Molly in the Mineshaft. Mm-hmm. And I was all excited because Mark Gesslison was already kind of a, a hero of mine, uh, though I think it made him very uncomfortable when I expressed my feelings oh, yeah. uh, candidly. Um, <laughs> and I never saw him again, but that's maybe not the reason why. <laughs> but, uh, but so you were playing Molly in the Mineshaft, a very cool local, uh, am, I being, am, I being, am I boxing him in too much to say it's a folk music group? I mean, that's, that's, is that fair? Is that okay? No, yeah, I'd say folk and then mixed with like, I'm not sure how, if you'd say progressive because it was like, or contemporary because mm-hmm. it was uh, it was more of like 50 50 mix and then cause sure. we would do we would do um a cape breton tune and then yeah. we go into a lady gaga tune so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was kind of it was kind of like okay we're gonna lure you in with this thing that you know is a pop tune uh-huh. and then all of a sudden we're gonna bust into this like super cool fiddle tune mm-hmm. that you know is from cape breton and they go oh this is cool and so it's kind of a um we liked it because it was like a good audience mix. Yeah. Um, so we get young and more mature crowds that mm-hmm. would like it. Um, but yeah, we we had uh, yeah lots of fun. Um, yeah, it was a good band. So <laughs> very cool band. Lots of lots of great music. In fact, organically, the other day I was listening to. Um, I really like that song. Uh, Hard times come again no more. Oh yeah. And I was listening to it. I was just listening. I just had searched it in Prime Music and was just listening. And Molly and the Mineshaft's version came up as like one of the top three. And yeah. it's a really good version. I really like yeah. it. That rumbling accordion in there and stuff. It's great uh-huh. stuff. Oh yeah, that was awesome. We had we had worked on that. I think they recorded that after after I'd left because we it was one that we were always like, oh, we want to we want to do it so bad. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. like it was kind of a heavy arrangement. We had to come up with you know the strings and all yeah. the different parts and um that was yeah that's a beautiful i think it's kind of based off of the um i think james taylor yes does that with he did with yo-yo ma Ma, yeah and mark uh mark o'connor yeah that's a beautiful yeah yeah well so molly in the mineshaft does this christmas concert often locally free Mm -hmm. everybody gets in there gets super packed fire code violation for sure yeah and um (laughs) and you They'd already been doing it, but at some point a few years ago, I was I was all excited and lucky because you were like, "Hey, we need a piper for this one song," because you had this uh-huh. arrangement of Wexford Carol that included pipes. Yeah, and that was so fun for me. My goodness, I'll yeah. tell you what, I and 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 I I still am like, 
it was this tiny little thing, but it was so much fun. It still gets me buzzing. That uh-huh. then, so then you put together a Christmas album based off of your your set list for that concert, right? Uh huh. Yeah. And I got that to come was, and record with you. That was pretty cool yeah, for that me. That was so fun. Very I love it. We were, we were trying to come up with with tunes, and um, and we were going through, and we're like, oh yeah, Wixford Carol. I'm like, and and I'm trying to remember. Where? Because I was, I was trying to pitch bagpipe kind of stuff. I'm like, oh, here we could put a bagpipe in here somewhere. And I um, can't remember how exactly how it, how it came about. But, um, uh, but yeah, we, got, we were able to get, I was able to get a tune mm-hmm. that had bagpipes in it that we would play because I was a super fan. And they were kind of like, bagpipes, Aaron. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, Trust me, guys. Go along with me on this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Give me this one thing. <laughs> Because it was it was between Wexford Carroll and actually a tune that I, as I was listening to the Timothy Cummings um, episode he talks about um, it's the um, I can't remember now it's like the lullaby cry, it's like a cry was child it, lullaby or some uh, I'm trying to think of it was it Balu um, Lammy or um, um, he's got he's got so many German and and like Latin titles yeah, in there that yeah. I have a hard time remembering what the first line title is you know in English yeah. Um, uh, well, there's a there's a there's a plug for the old episode. I'm <laughs> yeah, not sure. Maybe yeah, I'll maybe I'll republish those episodes into you know leading up to this one. Uh-huh. If not, though, definitely worth checking out. It would have been near Christmas last year in the yeah, back catalog. And so so as I was listening to them, I'm like, oh, that was that tune I found. Mm. I was just like on YouTube, kind of looking up stuff, and I found, um, I found that that mm-hmm. one uh, unknown name <laughs> too. <Yeah. laughs> and it had it had lyrics. Um, it had it in like Gaelic and in English, and then it had pipes. And I was like, "Oh, this is so cool!" But I think it was a little too out there for mm-hmm, Molly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just like, uh, it was beautiful. But I think I think Wexford was that like that familiarity. We needed some little familiarity. Yeah. Um, and we're able to put pipes in, and and they're like, "Okay, we're like." Aaron, you can play pipes. I'm like, uh, uh-uh. uh. <laughs> <laughs> I know someone who can though. Yeah, I was, I Which, was not. It, into <laughs> if I remember, right, you you had somebody from up at Wasatch come and play it a year or two, right? And then I got to step in and play it once or twice. Then I had a face surgery, and so I couldn't play a year. And I think d- yeah. didn't you end up playing it eventually? I, yeah, I I played the one that you you're like, oh, I can't do it. Because my face was wired shut. (laughs) Your face was wired shut. Well, my mouth can't open. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so we had you record, and so that's on the album. And then um, the concert came up, and um, I'm I'm sure I tried to have other people do it because I hadn't had a lot of experience playing solo Mm -hmm. and in 440. Yeah, that's true. Being steady because I was, you know, I was still a, a youngin on the pipes. I mean, still today, you. Well, aren't we all? Aren't we all? <laughs> you know, um, all of us except but, Russ Ainsley, we're all youngins. Yeah, but I was so nervous. Oh my gosh, that was so nerve wracking. But was it like, super cool to like put down your mandolin and pick up your pipes and be like, it was have the audience of, be was, like, what's she doing? Yeah, it was kind. Of, I, I, you know, you always that's that's why you play bagpipes, right? So exactly. That is why. Go, yep. What the heck? I'm yep. Like, yeah. <laughs> that is the main reason. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty it was pretty fun and I was I was glad that the performance went well, you know, it it went pretty well, uh, you know, 
with how how I how well I could do it. <laughs> but um, I was worried because like the the practice before something was off and I was like losing air mm. and I was really having a hard time. The band was like, uh, Aaron, um, are you gonna be ready for this? Like, yeah. So Everybody nervous. else is getting a little worried was, about you. <laughs> I was dying during the, the performance because I have to come in, I have to strike in, play because because in the tune, um, the bagpipes will play the A part and then the B part, the bagpipes are out because of, it's not like there's some notes in there that just right. I'm trying to remember. Did we? Do you have to tape down the F and the C or just the C or cross um, finger it? You know, I like one I, of those was non-standard. I, I think I just taped down the C. Is it just the C? I think. Yeah. That's the one. That's that the one. that's the that's yeah. the tangy one. So I just played. We just played the A part, and so I had a strike in mm-hmm. play, and then come out, and then the band would play the B part, and then I do it again. So mm-hmm. not only did I have to play, but I had to strike in mm-hmm. and cut off multiple times, which is. The most nerve-wracking yeah. part of playing the <laughs> did you Did you try cutting out just the chanter and keeping your drones going, or did you cut everything out no, and then bring it all back in? No, I would have done that now. I have more control to be able to do that now. Oh, but sure. Like, back it, then, I was just It was like, just oh, easier, just, just all on or all off. Yeah, I exactly. see, yeah. <laughs> well, it's yeah. one of my favorite Christmas albums, and I think it would be even if I didn't mm-hmm. you know, know and love a bunch of the people who are playing on it. But like, one of my favorite things about the album is that it opens with a tune from the Muppet Christmas Carol, which is the best yes. Christmas movie that's ever been made. And it's in a medley with yes. leather breeches, which is like, how could this be? It could not be yeah. more perfect. This is yes. really great. So I'll definitely link to the album down below. Everybody should definitely check this one out. I know oh, that yeah. your rendition of still, still, still on that album is one of the most popular ones on the internet. Oh yeah. That one. Yeah. So this, this album again, in my favorite as well, we had a lot of, um, um, arrangements, um, by our band members. So Jordan did the Muppet thing. He was heading the, the Christmas, um, mm-hmm. when we sleep till Christmas. Um, and then, um, uh, bah, 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 bah. and then we have, let's see. Oh, Alex did the, he did a version of, um, Oh, in the bleak midwinter. Oh yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah. Love that oh one. my gosh. So he changed the melody on it and it made me listen to the words more. I'm like, Oh my gosh, these words are so pretty. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. And then Scott Monson, I think he arranged still, still, still. Mm-hmm. And it was like full on. I mean, he does, um, he does like music score and everything. Or, yeah. You know, Scott is like, he plays a lot of Cajon with, he did with, with uh, Molly and he does now with Grizzly Goat as well. But it's like, yeah. He, I, I don't want this to sound um, uh, negative in any way because like I play cajon sometimes, you know. So I'm not, I'm not uh-huh. yeah. bagging on cajon players, but you know, sometimes it's like the cajon is played by the person who doesn't like read music, yeah, you know. Yeah, you Scott like, is oh. not that guy. Yeah, <laughs> he, like, oh, he knows music he can stuff. Play beats and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, he is like the most like music theory knowledgeable. Right, and right. So he had this, you know, the arrangement for still, 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 and he handed it to me. I'm like, oh great, I gotta like. I gotta play exactly what you know. I usually put your just, glasses like, do on, right? <laughs> so yeah. now I'm like, oh shoot! So recording studio is all stressed out. I'm like, I can't miss a note. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, it's yeah, got that's... so much good music on the album, mm-hmm. and a lo- it feels like a lot of them are like would would appeal especially to pipe the piping crowd because you got the parting glass and old Lang Syne and other stuff on there. Oh too. yeah, parting glass. I would love that one. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Now and speaking of Scott, one thing that I love about this because like, d- r- tell me if I'm wrong if I'm wrong about this, but. 
um, in Wexford Carol, it's Grace that's singing, right? Yes. And you hear Scott playing piano, and those two got married. Yes. Oh, I know. I'm so happy. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> so let's let's play let's play it here. We'll we'll insert yeah. the audio for Wexford Carol here. Did I? 
So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do? You have any uh, fun info for me about uh, Wexford Carol, like the song itself? Yeah. Yeah. So um, looking it up, um, I didn't know that it's like one of the oldest carols um, from like in Ireland and and Europe. Um, I did not know that. Um, and let's see. Uh, is Wexford is a place in Ireland? Yeah, so the Wexford um, is county, um, Wexford, uh, county Wexford, and um, it's also known, another known its name it's known for, known its name for, <laughs> is um, Inniscorthy Carol, which is within, I guess it's like a town within Wexford. Okay, Inniscorthy um, sounds very Irish, I see. Yeah, Inniscorthy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so it was like a, a 12th century tune that... They had, I guess, two guys have, um, were known for transcribing it, and they're not sure exactly, like... Oh, were they, like, some of those tune collectors that were, like, traveling around the British Isles for a while? Yeah. Yeah, so there's one guy who was, um, who was an organist and, like, a music director for Mm -hmm. Cathedral, um, and I think it's, uh, Flood was his name. And so he had collected that, and then it got published in like the 20s, 1920s. Hmm. But then there's another guy as a bishop um, and he had uh, a, he had put together uh, like a collection of tunes and that was like in the 1600s. And so hmm. I'm not sure, I'm guessing the bishop guy found it first. Right? Yeah, he was, he <laughs> but, was first, first but, to the treasure. <laughs> but, and he has, oh, his, his collection was like the Kilmore Carols. Um, but those were the two, um, I guess, most popular um, collected um, those, are, those are kind of our, our modern it, or, sources, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so, but, but they were transcribing it. it. They weren't writing it. So it was like yeah, it was so like folk music around there exactly, already. Exactly. Which I is see. cool. It's like somebody just sang it to them. I think. It's oh so cool. yeah. So the, yeah, I've always, I've always been fascinated by that. These people who would like go around, and I assume just like go out to the you know the the women working in the fields in yeah. the outer Hebrides or something and be yeah. like sing me your songs and they just sit <laughs> yeah. there and like write them as they sing them in a notebook you know yeah oh here's a cool so um uh there's a movie so I guess the the study would be um ethnomusicology mm-hmm. I think is that um I took a class at BYU um about the teacher was an ethnomusicologist, I guess. Okay, so so now when when your when your husband starts pulling out those big those big yeah. biology terms, you'd be like, I've got well, big words too. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, but um, but another little tidbit. So if you have seen, there's a Disney movie, an old Disney movie with. Um, uh, oh, I can't remember her name. Oh gosh, she's on. Um, uh, parent Trap, the old Parent Trap. Oh, okay, yep. Um, Haley, Haley Mills. Haley Mills, that's her name. Um, there's a movie, another Disney movie with Haley Mills, a little older, and it's called Moon Spinners. Moon Spinners. And, and they're in Greece, and it's her, and she's the niece of this lady who's an ethnomusicologist, and she's recording these ladies sitting, singing this these Greek folk tunes and so in the movie you're watching her and she's got a little recording device and she's recording them singing and it's just huh. it's just like romantic adventure yeah um, thriller kind of movie it's really it's actually pretty fun um but in there she's recording these 
folk people, you know, these towns people singing these folk tunes. So, anyways, <laughs> I'm I'm Wikipediaing it right now. Yeah, Moon Spinners, and I think it might be on Disney Plus or something. Um, but I like that movie. It's cool. And and, and the, it's in Greek. And does Wexford Carroll comes up comes up come up in it? No, it doesn't. Oh, I see. It's just the, the music collection thing. I see. That's the, the connection. Okay, okay. So if you want to see it. <laughs> and there are lizards in the movie too, so it yeah, all ties I'm together. Sure they ate Mexican food when they went on a date. <laughs> this is this episode will be adventures in um, I don't know, in random thought. Right, yeah. That's kind of the that's kind of the modus operandi around here anyway. So and you'll never know. Here's the thing. You'll never know what we're going to say, so you, you can't miss it. You that's right. You've got to listen to it because you If you want to know, know what happens in this episode, you'll just have exactly. to listen. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now, what about... Now, with Wexford Carroll, do you remember... When, is there... Is there do you remember the first time you heard it, or is there a version of it that, in your mind, is like the definitive version? Like this is oh. the original, at least in your personal experience. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm trying to think if I had heard. Um, I think maybe the first like arrangement of it that was like a cool arrangement was I think didn't Alison Krauss do this one? I feel like um, probably because like Christmas music I, was a big thing, right? Maybe I think he did. She did, and it's probably with Yo Yo Ma. Yo Yo Ma plays with everybody, mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, I think that was the first like arrangement that was like, wow, that's really really pretty, mm-hmm. and kind of kind of going that drone factor. I think probably sure, uh, yeah. But before that, I'd heard it. Um, I'd heard it probably on um, you know guitar. We had growing up, we had this Christmas guitar. CD that we play every Christmas when we go down and open our presents, which I love. Oh, that's like, fun. That CD. I need to like refine it again. But um, I'd heard it just instrumentally, but not with the words until oh yeah until later. But huh. I always love this this tune and like in the bleak midwinter. Yeah. Um. Just yeah, some of my favorite like Christmas tunes that you don't hear often, more obscure, but hmm. uh, just really beautiful. Yeah. I I feel like personally like. Christmas music is in well a lot of kind of what I guess you could call more traditional Christmas music is kind of really new to me Um, my wife and I laugh about it all the time that like for her Christmas music is your very typical like sort of Bing Crosby kind of stuff yeah and uh I didn't know that it was weird maybe it's that maybe it's not fair for me to say weird but I didn't know it was like anything other than standard that for me growing up um Motown was the sound of Christmas Oh, really? Because, like, my dad just really liked those Motown Christmas albums. And I thought, I, like... I've never... I don't think I've... Well, I guess you better watch out. Sure. Jackson 5 did. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Jackson That's 5 probably. is... James Brown, though, also did some Christmassy stuff. Um, and, uh, and uh, well, just a bunch of the Motown folks did some Christmassy stuff. And that's just, like... Yeah. In my head, that's what Christmas sounds like. And so it's uh-huh. only been in adulthood that I've, like been able to like dive into like choral stuff and i I mean you know there was some of that too when i was a kid but uh yeah a lot of this sort of like maybe like older uh western european kind of stuff is is uh really exciting for me in in that it's kind of new to me you know so it's been a lot of fun to dig through it (laughs) well uh aaron i've been keeping you for about an hour now is is your is your sweet baby uh in need or uh oh oh daryl went off to to get her from her nap so did he, did he take her outside to, to, to find some, some snakes on the road or something? Yeah, you know, we should do that today. <laughs> yeah, he actually, he went uh, out driving yesterday and um, uh, 
ran across a, a rattlesnake. He didn't oh. run it over, but he got out and pulled it off from the road. He so, got out and touched it? Yeah. Well, he didn't touch it. He's very he's very safety conscious. He probably took a stick or something like that. Well, he better he's, be. He's, he's not gonna... one of those... He's not one of those, like, Bear Grylls guys that will yeah. just go, hey, look how dangerous this thing is. <laughs> I'm going to eat it. I'm going to do something crazy. Yeah. He's like, they're idiots. Look at him. Don't bother. So he probably just got a stick and kind of nudged it off so no one would run over it. Yeah. I see. So. Now, now, speaking of venomous versus poisonous, are rattlesnakes, yeah. uh, since rattlesnakes are venomous, does that mean they're, are they not poisonous? Could I eat a rattlesnake? You could probably eat, probably not where the gland, you know, it's like... Avoid the head. venom glands are yeah. and stuff, but I'm sure you... I mean, I don't know how tasty that would be, but... <laughs> well, hey. if I wanted to open myself up to some liability <laughs> lawsuits, then uh, it's it's by telling people on the listening to the podcast, it's safe to eat there rattlesnakes. <laughs> well, we have a recording, James. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> <I> dummy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, I'm going to make sure, so like I said, I'll make sure that there's links to that album down below. And what else, Aaron, I just, I want to get, maybe maybe this is kind of our, our, our closing note here. I want to know, mm-hmm. what are your favorite Christmas albums? Like, if you were to give somebody a recommendation, check these ones out. Oh. Give me some recommendations, if you would. Yes. Okay. So, um, I'm not sure if uh, Amy Grant has more than two, but I have, we had two of her Christmas albums that I love. So, Amy Grant Christmas is awesome. I think she also, in one of the tunes, um, she has this awesome, like, orchest- orchestral arrangement of Yesu Man, um, Yesu... Oh, um, uh, Joy of Man's Desiring, that one? Joy of Man's the Bach Desiring, one? yes, yes. Yeah. And it has Mark O'Connor in it, and it's just instrumental. And so you would think it's just be singing tunes, but she does, like, it's legit awesome album. So, mm-hmm. um, she has two that I, I'm not sure what they're called, but um, any Amy Grant Christmas. Um, and let me think, other than Amy Grant, um, well, the Muppet Christmas album with John Denver is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> so, is a good one. I do like that one. That one's, that one's pretty awesome. John Denver's awesome. Don't let me um, break your concentration here, Aaron, but <laughs> along the exact same lines of everything that makes that album great, just a couple years ago, my wife introduced me to the Lamb Chop Christmas special. Do you remember oh, Lamb Chop? Yes, yes. They they did like a like a, a run through of the Nutcracker Suite, but with Lamb oh. Chop like narrating the story. Well, it's it's the lady. I can't remember what the lady's name was, but she's like yeah, it's like she's telling lady. Lamb Chop the story for like a bedtime story. So they have the <laughs> Nutcracker music, but it's like it's a great audio experience oh for very gosh. similar reasons. So let me just plug <laughs> that one awesome. real quick, and then yeah, there go ahead. Go. Tell, give give me some more. Aaron. What else is good for Christmas? <laughs> um. And that one obscure guitar Christmas album, which I will have to find. It's really Tell you what, <laughs> when you if you can find it, just send it to me and I'll put it in the in the show notes. Oh yeah, it's, I'll put a link to it. Good. <laughs> so yeah, I think those are, those are the ones that that pop in my mind mm-hmm. as like full mm-hmm. albums that I love listening to. Awesome. Yeah. There you go. Well, cool. Um, I think that that that's probably gonna make a decent episode. Yeah. I'll just have it kind of. <laughs> Thanks again, Tim. I will do my very best to not just turn into a complete fanboy. <laughs> I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but this is really exciting for me. I've been a, a fan of yours for a long time. Well, thanks.
Thanks, Jim, and I'm really, really pleased to and honored to uh, be asked to, to do this and happy to talk about uh, uh, whatever we come up with. Um, and uh, yeah, I've certainly enjoyed getting to know you a little bit through email and a few different projects, shared projects that way. So um, thanks for thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. I, I hope that we'll see if it's if it's a positive experience, if it's a positive enough experience for you. There are I can think just right off the top of my head of so many things I'd love to talk to you about. Um, I think the main challenge right now for me is going to be trying to focus just on the Christmas collection and not be like, you know, who makes your bagpipes? And, and what about, right. you know, what about the Ift of Efts book? I love that book. Tell me about that one, you know. So. <laughs> well, happy, happy to roll with whatever, Jim. No worries. Well, thank you. So, uh, Tim, I think it's at this point, the majority of people listening to this will probably be people in, in, my, in the Garden Valley Pipe Band. Um, though I, I hope that a lot of people will get to hear it because I really love this Christmas collection that you've made. So I'm going to try my best to spread it far and wide. But I know that the people in the Garden Valley Pipe Band will be at least somewhat aware of you because it was your rendition of, uh, oh, what which title did you use? Was it Bonaparte Crossing in the Rockies? Um, yeah, that or Battle of Waterloo. They're, they're sort of uh, one and the same, more or less. Right. Yeah, we ended up... Um, we didn't realize that at the, the same year that we used that in a competition set, uh, another local band, Wasatch and District, also used it. Uh, so we just, they went with one title and we went, we went, we went with the other. <laughs> but it's, it was, a, it's a great tune. It's a it timeless is, yeah. melody and, and it's known through s in so many different um, corners of the traditional music world. Um, so yeah, it's a good one to know and, and share. Yeah. So, so our Garden Valley Pipe Band members are going to be at least somewhat aware of you because of that. Um, I think it's probably worth taking just a couple minutes to do just a quick little bio. Um, you know, what uh, you know, what what do you do in the in the bagpiping sphere? Uh, in the bagpiping sphere, uh, I juggle uh, a variety of different tasks and roles, um, wearing different hats, and um, they almost all relate to the pipes in some way or another. So. Um, I obviously do the, the, the publishing venture at just a tiny, tiny cottage industry of, of uh, arranging and, and typesetting music to look real pretty on the page and then uh, sell that through my website and um, sometimes through other vendors. Um, and um, so that's one piece and that's called the Birchen Music and Publishing, originally called Bay Music. It was an obscure Gaelic word meaning birch but no one could pronounce it, so I, I, and I don't speak Gaelic anyway, so I went with the English. Mm. Um, and so I also teach privately um, a limited number of students, um, mostly ones that I can see in person in normal times. Um, and I've had some outdoor lessons this, this fall, which has been really nice. Um, now we're into snowy weather. Um, and then performing both um, on my own uh, various concerts and gigs, and then also uh, with Jeremiah McLean, who plays piano, accordion, and piano. Um, we've had a duo uh, for the most part of 10 years now that, that um, we lovingly refer to as Weezer and Squeezer. <laughs> you get to decide which one of us is which. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> um, and in more recent years, we've added a third member, Alex Keller from uh, Sherbrooke, Quebec, um, and he's been a great compliment and a great addition, both uh, in terms of just friends getting together to, to play music that we love and, and musically. 
Um, he's really a very, very gifted player and musician, as is Jeremiah. Um, and then uh, I do some recording as well, um, working on a project at present with uh, Pete Sutherland uh, on fiddle and Brad Kalodner on banjo. That'll be coming out in the new year, hopefully. Um, so multiple, multiple juggling. Uh, I think I'm forgetting something, but we'll, we'll stop there. Okay. For now, at least. Exactly. Um, yeah. Some of, some of the stuff I'm, I'm, some of the stuff that you've known with, with, uh, with Brian has been like, just like really some of my real go-to music for years now. I, lo I love some of those arrangements that you guys have and, and some pieces that you've done. Um, I'm going to make sure for anybody listening, hop into the description. I'll make sure to, uh, include links to some of my favorite performances. Um, and definitely to the Birchin music website. Um, because that's what I want to talk to you about right now is this collection that you made um, of Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany carols for the Scottish bagpipes. It's called On This Day Earth Shall Ring. And you mentioned, and this is one thing that I really love about everything I've purchased from Birchin Music, is that the, the typesetting, the paper that it's put on, all of that, the production quality basically of the physical product, it's beautiful. Is, do you have printing equipment yourself or do you have people you work with? How does that process work? No, I, I work with the local printers, um, but I do the, all of the all of the typesetting, all of the text, everything uh, here at home, and I just send them a giant PDF, and they print from that. Um, so, uh, and I just specify what paper I like to use. Usually, something, some component of, you know, some percentage of recycled content. Um, try to do my bit for the planet. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but yeah, all of the typesetting is, and text is all, and art, uh, digging up, you know, artwork that's okay to use um, and appropriate, hopefully, for the, for the, each collection, that's all done uh, here at home. Yeah, that's one thing that I really like about the collections. Anybody interested, this collection, of course, can be purchased on the Birch and Music uh, website. There, a lot of the tunes, maybe maybe even all of them, you tell me, are also available as individual PDF downloads on there. That's right. Um, not all of them yet, but a good a good chunk of them, and um, which includes uh, some very familiar carols to the the general public, and then some more obscure ones that I really love, uh, and just wanted to sort of record and help promote, um, uh, and hoping more people will play them. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's one of the first things. So I had I was familiar with your collection and Ift of Efts, and from there I think I went to the the Appalachian collection, um, and that one is where I first realized you can read these books. Um, you know, throughout there's a bunch of great little you know tune histories, uh, photos and and sketches. Um, there's a lot of really fun information throughout these collections. It's not just the it's not just the sheet music. And that's the case for this uh, Christmassy collection as well. Yeah, I um, I really enjoy the physical uh, nature of of you know holding a book, holding paper in your hands, and flipping pages, and uh, not having advertisements blink at you while you do that. Um, no clickbait. You just you're focused on what uh, whatever is in, literally in your hand, uh, and you can just peruse and explore. Um, but you're always in staying present with whatever that particular book, that publication is about. Yeah. Um, so, and then to add some of those little bits of information, um, 
I just think it adds to the whole experience, a little bit of supplementary, um, hey, I bet you didn't know such and such about this carol, and, um, or this might help you appreciate it even more to know this little tidbit, this background or this translation or something like that. Yeah, that's definitely been my experience. I really enjoy reading through them. And in this, in this collection specifically, um, which I should say the title, it's On This Day, Earth Shall Ring, um, I was really surprised as I was going through at how much how much art you were able to find re relating to Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, etc., that features bagpipes. I think there are over 30 images in the book. I should actually get the exact number and, and issue a challenge to see if uh, who can find every piper in, in, embedded within the publication. That's a great idea. <laughs> I, I started as part of the prep for this episode. I just started like keeping a spreadsheet of just like stuff I thought was interesting. And I was putting down all these titles of all these paintings. And yeah, it was, there are a lot. I don't know if I got to 30, but I didn't get, I didn't get through all of them. You know, there, there are so many in there. And I just, you know, I've seen pipes in, in old paintings and stuff here and there, but never presented in such a consistent, you know, collection that's all together. And so it just, it was kind of baffling to me once I realized like, man, there are a lot of these paintings and stuff that, that include pipers, you know? There really are. And most coming from the medieval and Renaissance uh, ages, um, uh, when pipers were pretty common folk um, in Europe and often associated with, with the pastoral scene. Um, their instruments were made partly out of the animals they were looking after. So, um, and of course, if you go to the biblical story, biblical narratives of, of the birth of Christ, then the shepherds are very prominent in that story as well. Mm, yeah, there's also notable consistency in titles for these paintings that feature pipers so many of them are the announcement to the shepherds um, that's right etc yeah exactly there are a few really uh i found them very entertaining uh, uh some paintings where there's a piper playing for the christ child the infant jesus uh and just to <laughs> imagine that happening. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that would not have been allowed way back when, had there been yeah. bagpipes um, in those times. But uh, what decent mother would have allowed such a thing to happen? <laughs> exactly. I, uh, I, yeah, I found those very, very humorous. Well, um, maybe could you tell me a little bit, Tim, specifically about how this collection came about? You know, what what called your interest to it? Uh, maybe which tunes got you started? Uh, what resources you went to to find, especially some of these uh, more obscure tunes? Um. Sure. Uh, yeah, um, I've I've grown up um, in the church, the Presbyterian Church specifically. Both of my parents now are ordained Presbyterians. Uh, when I was growing up, my father was um, Presbyterian minister, and my mother, for a time, played organ for the church. So. Um, there's both the music and the kind of the theological influences uh, in one package right there mm, at I'm, home. I, and and, and if, you, if, you, if you don't mind me doing so, I'll in, interject there then. That, 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 makes, that tracks for me because a lot of the music that I've pulled from your website and, and uh, either just played or performed with other people has been these organ bagpipe duets. There you go. Um, and... Uh, so there's that influence uh, for sure. Also just the love of this repertoire. Uh, generally, I love the music that is associated with uh, Christmas, particularly the older European carols, but um, some newer material too. And then in terms of the organ, um, you have an instrument that's 
very closely related to the bagpipes. Um, some have, uh, in days of yore, referred to the pipes as the poor man's organ. Mm. They're both bellows operated in some manner or other, and both have pipes and reeds um, to produce sound. Um, and they both have the capability of producing continuous sound, which almost no other instrument can do. Mm. So they have a lot in common. They blend beautifully. At the same time, you have the organ is generally more refined, and, and if it's well-tuned, it's tuned to a more modern temperament, equal temperament. The pipes tend to be a more natural, um, organic tuning called natural, uh, or just intonation, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, and you put the two together, and the, you know, the more refined, consistent tone of the organ pipes and the less consistent tones of the bagpipes, and you get this... Uh, clash on top of the, you know, uh, adjacent to the blend. And the clash is sort of between this pious organ and this profane, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, bagpipe. And it's a, it's a wonderful tension that way. Mm. I, I wouldn't have been able to put it quite so eloquently, um, but I definitely experienced that when a good friend, Scott, and I did um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the, the arrangement that you, that you put together of that one. We did it with a really big pipe organ and with the pipes sort of tuned as close as we could get them, you know what I mean? Yep. And uh, yeah, definitely that tension between beautiful refinement and, in its way, beautiful natural madness. Um, it added to it. It ended up being, you know, not. I don't think it took away from the experience. I think it's part of what made it magical. I totally agree. Uh, and I think I think um, audiences react to that as well in, in ways that surprise them even. Um, Natural madness. I'm going to borrow that phrase. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. So as you were putting this collection together, is this a labor of, you know, was it slow moving for decades and then you realized, hey, I've got a collection going on here? Or did you kind of decide, you know what, I'm going to put something together? Because I can tell you, when I was, oh, you know, 14, 15 years old, playing pipes, Christmas time rolled around and it was like, you know, there's a school assembly or something, let's go play a Christmas song. And it was like up on the housetop or, you know, <laughs> jingle bells, you know, heaven yeah. forbid, you know, and this, I do not get the impression that any of the tunes in this collection are like, if it says Christmas in the title and I can kind of make it work on pipes, I'm going to throw it in there. You know, these are, these are nice to listen to. If that, if that makes sense, I'm sure a lot of people listening will know that jingle bells on bagpipes is not necessarily pleasant, even when done, especially well. <laughs> Maybe that's just no, my opinion, but there might be a certain age group who would love that. Uh, sure. But uh, no, I tend to agree. And I started this. I probably I think a lot of these collections just started out as um, just kind of like, well, let me try a couple of tunes in this particular genre or some kind of exploration. And then you realize this is really fun, uh, and there's lots more to explore. And then you get a little bit obsessed for a while. In the case of this book, um, I really, really wanted to do the absolute best job that I could with it. And um, uh, it was just an important topic for me and for an instrument that is uh, really I'm very passionate about. So uh, combining multiple passions just meant that I really wanted to, to do the best that I possibly could do with, with my skills and, and resources. So this, uh, I actually started this uh, eight years before it ended up being published, but it was um, a project that came and went in fits and starts and um, mm. uh, long, long pauses where nothing at all was happening. But uh, towards the end, I got extra focused and really 
really went for it. So, but it, you know, eight years from start to finish, in a way, in a sense. And uh, I mean, I, and I've got a copy of it here in front of me. I don't know if you've heard the pages rustling. I'm just kind of looking through it as we talk. Um, but the uh, we've got some. We've got just about 160 pages of music here. I think. Is that about? How, is that about how many tunes there are in here? I mean, it's a thick collection. There are a lot. There's a lot of material here. Yeah, there are some that um, that are more than one page in length, uh, and some cases where I have artwork just on a on a filler oh, page. Course. There, it, I think it totals about a. 115 somewhere around 115 carols and and that's that is one thing that is remarkable about this collection tim that i couldn't name i don't think i could name 115 christmas carols even if i include popular music you know just off the top of my head but you've managed to pull together 115 once again they sound good on bagpipes you know 115 songs of the season that are also compatible with the bagpipes um what resources did you use? I, I, I'm going to guess that you maybe didn't already know of all of these tunes before going into the project. You're absolutely correct. Um, and I drew from a whole bunch of sources. Originally, um, the main source was the Oxford Book of Carols. Um, there, there's an older version from 1928, maybe, and then the new Oxford Book of Carols, uh, both coming out you know, of England. Um, I think that's dated 1992, possibly, but that is just a wealth of carols, familiar and obscure, uh, more along the traditional vein, which was, which is my preference to my, my general area of focus. Um, and they include a lot of background information as well. Um, I sort of borrowed their idea to have a little, little blurb, a little discussion about the carol, or maybe some tips on, on playing it or performing it. They do the same thing in, in their giant collection there, and um, it's superb. But there, of course, are many, many other sources, including regular old hymnals or various recordings, um, even some uh, collections of pipe tunes. Uh, one notable example is, is the tune called uh, Christmas is Coming, uh, which most traditional players know as the 3-2 hornpipe Rusty Gully. Mm. Or possibly Wee Willie Gray is another common title. Uh, but it just happens to have an, yet another title, Christmas is Coming, and I thought, why not include that? Yeah. Now, do you find that when looking through these older collections, like these collections you can get from, from the Oxford Press, etc., that they're, it's comparatively easy to find songs that will fit or tunes rather that will fit the you know the range restrictions of the bagpipes, or is it still kind of a needle in the haystack situation that requires a lot of you know looking and playing and testing and trying? It's sort of a mix of the two. That's a great question. Um, a lot of folk songs uh, are are designed. A lot of traditional music is designed to be accessible by the general public, more or less, um, and when you consider the general public uh, is not made up of professionally trained singers, then uh, you understand that, that songs that they're supposed to sing cannot have a, a really wide melodic span. They can't go, you know, a two octave range or something like, you know, you might find in some classical piece or operatic number. Um, so generally they tend to fit within an octave or pretty close within, uh, which suits our bagpipe channel, a really limited bagpipe channel. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and older, older traditional carols also tend not to modulate. That is, they don't change key partway through as a lot of hymns and, and modern church hymnals will modulate halfway through. Yeah. Um, and that's a little trickier for us. Um, so, uh, yes, there are many carols, many more carols than are in this book, uh, that exist, that are beautiful, that are worth exploring, but we can't play on our pipes, uh, and, and succeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and do justice to the carol. Right. right. We might be offending the carol in one way or another if we, if we try too hard at it. Um, as I'm looking down the, the contents page, I'm seeing titles in English, French, Russian, German. Um, do you have off the top of your head just how many geographical areas or language traditions you're, you, were, you pulled from for this collection? You know, I don't. I haven't, I haven't really uh, done that tally, but um, a good portion. And, and the majority of the foreign ones would probably be French. They have a, a, a really... A huge canon of, of music associated with uh, Noel or Christmas, and I, I wish you know if I'd thought of it, I would have looked at them to find out. But I'm curious if you know off the top of your head, do, do a lot of those French tunes that are in this collection follow that um, Breton style of playing, where we've got um, basically we're playing in a minor key, or there uh, is there a fair mix of, of uh, minor to to major sounding tunes in there? Uh, also a good question. I think there's a, a pretty good mix. Um, the Breton tunes definitely have a darkness about them, or a lot of them do, but there are many that are in a major key as well. I'm just mm. not sure they, they wound up in this tune book. Um, and for that matter, the French, you know, um, Bre- it's probably worth clarifying to your listeners that um, the people of Brittany, of that, that part of Western France, that little nub that sticks out uh, westward into the Atlantic, they speak French, they eat croissants, they drink wine, um, but they don't really consider themselves entirely French. Mm. Um, they're really a Celtic-blooded people with their own native language um, that is still spoken by some. It's, it's holding on for now, a bit like Welsh in that way, and it's very closely related to Welsh and Cornish. Um, so uh, they're, they're, the Breton and French traditions, there has been some overlap and some mixing, but they're also kind of distinct as well. I see. Now that's, I, I am relatively ignorant about the, the particularities of the Breton style bagpiping. Um, basically, the only identifier that I have when I'm hearing it is, does it sound like their C is taped down and or their F? <laughs> then it might be, you know, from Brittany instead of Scotland. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And that does bring up the fact that a lot of these tunes, I don't know about a lot, but certainly some of them, they have really helpful notes about, you know, in order to play this correctly, either use cross-fingering or, you know, tape down your C and or your F or alternative tuning for the drones. That's right. Um, and I recognize that that this is not familiar territory for a lot of pipers. And in some cases... Uh, like changing the tuning of drones, it may not be possible, um, or at least not immediately. Um, you know, you can't just move a drone a certain way or swap the tr- top of one drone that, and know that it will fit another drone and, and if change only. the length of it. I know. Some, a lot of pipes do, do that, um, but a number don't. Um, yeah. So I'm aware that there are many cases where this, some of these uh, offerings in the, in the book may not be as accessible as... Um, uh, for some as they are for others, but, um, yeah, 
There are also many that just fit this plain old Scottish chanter just fine. Yeah, so many. Absolutely. It's not like it's a limiting factor in any way. And I have found in my own playing through this collection that if I'm playing on the Highland pipes and, you know, there's I need to tape down the C or, or something or there's something would sound better with different drone tuning. You know, sometimes it's just I cork off two drones and mess with the reed on the other to get it, you know, up a up a full tone or down a full tone or something like that. And yep, um, with the small pipes, you know, if I've got a, a bass, a bass, a baritone and a tenor drone and I can't get them into the right tuning, then again, you know, I just mute that mute that baritone. And so then I just have a consistent one consistent note and it works just fine. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, and it does take some exploration, but um, the more you do it, the more you sort of get accustomed to it. And you, the more you tend to find your, your own preferences, you discover what, what you, uh, get most excited about what tuning or what key or, um, is most interesting to your own ear. Mm. Yeah. I had, uh, one of those sort of magical moments just the other day as I was playing some of the tunes and I had recently got, I, um, replaced slash upgraded my set of Walsh small pipes to a to an AD combo set. So I've got the four drones that I can play around with now. Great. And switching one of them just from playing E as the baritone note to D was like just suddenly, it's a, such a small change, but suddenly like so many tunes sounded so different as a result of, of that, that one small change. It was a lot they, of fun. They really do. And um, something I like to to invite people to think about and ex experiment in workshops and, and in private teaching um, is to explore that the, there's usually two different uh, drone uh, options per key that you're playing in. Um, one would be the, the first note of whatever scale you're based in. So if you're playing, say, Scotland the Brave, you're based in A. That's a tune that, that starts and ends on A, and um, that's its anchor. Obviously, tuning your drone to your chanter's low A is, is going to sound good. Mm -hmm. But there's always or almost always going to be uh, a second option that, that works almost as well. Um, and it's the fifth note of the scale. So if you consider A is one uh, and count up to five, you get to E. Uh, so sometime you should try playing Scott and the Brave or any tune in A with just an E drone going and just to hear how that sounds. Mm. Um, so that's an option for almost any tune that, that we would offer on our pipes. Mm. I wonder, I, this, is, this, this will be a fun experiment. I've never tried before. I've tried messing with my Great Highland Pipe drones somewhat, you know, like get an extra bass drone topper to put onto a tenor drone, stuff like that. But I, I, I've never tried just playing like the bottom section of the drone just to see how high that one can get. And how brash it might sound. It change <laughs> yeah. the tone as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's so worth exploring. And, and uh, that is kind of another take on the word playing you, uh, an instrument. Oh, You're literally yeah. playing. Yeah. You're just having fun. Awesome. Well, uh, let's look, uh, Tim, if you, if you feel into it, at a few of the specific tunes in this collection. Um, one of them, and I just want to look at it right along with you here in the book, is on page six. It's in, the title is in, is it French? Asoli. I do not speak French. Oh, uh, that one is Latin, I think. Oh, is that I'm, Latin? I, I do I'm speak Spanish. I could, I could, I could murder it in that way. You're welcome to try. Modern language. <laughs> You'll probably do better than I. I, I tend to pronounce it Asolis Ortus Cardine, um, 
And the I just opened it here, and I've got a copy of the book here too. So the translation uh, that um, my source, the, again, the New Oxford Book of Carols offers is from lands that see the sun arise. Mm. So one thing that stands out to me about this one just at first glance is there are no vertical lines separating the measures. Or they're very tiny, um, but you're right. Oh, Generally, you're right. I do see some of those teensy tiny ones. Uh, they, yeah, and that comes, you know, that's because when, when this music was written, there was not the standard notation style that we have now. Mm -hmm. Um, so they sort of approximate, the editors of the New Oxford book approximate, uh, what might be a phrase or a measure. Um, it's a sort of a Gregorian chant style song or carol. Um, yeah. so there's a, it's a different way of sort of thinking about phrasing. Yeah, and that's that's fun. I mean, looking at it, I'm like, okay, well, if that's a measure marker, is this what uh, a twelve-four time signature or something along those lines? But Which then, will change for each little phrase yeah, as well. Yeah, that's different. Not all so twelve. Yeah, things, yeah. Very fun though. So listening to some Gregorian chants might give a person an idea of sort of how to feel this tune out. Precisely. Yeah. Uh, Sarum chant. Uh, um, was was practiced and, and written, uh, composed, um, I believe, in starting around the 11th century, uh, up until the English Reformation. So three or four hundred years there, uh, in Britain. Um, but it was used, um, and interestingly, it was used by I believe the Roman Catholic Church and um, the Anglican Church. Uh, so both Catholic and Protestant, um, their liturgy was was adopted by both in some cases. So. This is a pretty old tune, um, and yes, listening to Gregorian chant would, would help guide uh, an approach uh, to playing this instrumentally. And, and maybe I'm completely out in the woods with this, Tim. You, you tell me if I am, but it seems to me like Peabrook is seeing a real surge in popularity right now amongst Great Highland Pipers. Um, and this sort of, mm, what would you call it, sort of more less, less restricted sort of chant form that I think also would have been sort of something that would have been done on organs a long time ago as well and stuff. This, it feels similar to me, kind of meditative, Exactly, and I think uh, I think uh, in our modern 
detached, distracted world. Um, things that sort of help people uh, find a more meditative state, um, maybe even hypnotic, um, are becoming, enjoying a, a kind of a surge in popularity like that. So I agree, this does have that sort of arrhythmic um, or freer, uh, less defined pulse of, say, uh, uh, the ground of a pibroch, mm -hmm. the way that pibroch is performed currently, certainly. The arrangement that's in the Carroll book is uh, an experiment uh, of another sort, um, uh, which is where I kind of tried to imagine that the embellishments, some of our grace notes and, and embellishments, um, can be somewhat imitative of speech patterns and consonances and vowels and things like that in just the way we speak in, in any language. Mm. Um, and I've often regarded our articulation patterns on the bagpipe chanter um, as something that sounds a little bit like birdsong, a little bit like some foreign language or some alien language almost. You can almost hear words being spoken. And so for this arrangement, just, just to try it, uh, just to explore the the idea of it, I thought, why not try to match some of the grace notes with, or sort of imitate some of the consonants that are in the lyrics, the first verse anyways, with oh, yeah, our yeah. more standard grace notes. Um, what I haven't really done yet is memorize those. I have performed this with a singer a few times. Um, and I, there is a video online uh, of that I can't remember if I if she was singing the Latin while I was playing or not, but either way I didn't have the, the these grace note patterns memorized, so I mm -hmm. wasn't really trying to match her consonants. But someday I would love for somebody to try that, yeah. and just see if that has any interest or value at all. Oh, beautiful. Well, let's hop over then and look at um, page one fourteen in the collection. Another I can't pronounce. <laughs> well, we'll get to that one in just a moment. Um, well, in English, uh, a lot of us know this as the Christ Child's Lullaby. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the Gaelic would be something similar. Uh, I'm not a Gaelic speaker, but something closer to Tala Criista. Mm. Um, when you see accents, uh, when I see accents in Gaelic, I tend to assume that that requires a little bit of a... Um, an accent in terms of stressing that syllable. Yeah. I'm sure there's more nuance to that, but that's a start anyway. So one thing that I noticed when looking at this one, uh, similar to the tune we just barely talked about as well, is we do have uh, C natural throughout. Yes. Um, um, I know that it seems to me like some sets of pipes at some altitudes can get the, uh, some chanters, I should say, at some altitudes can get cross-fingering to work really well. But I know that for me, where I live at least, uh, I pretty much can only use tape. I have to rely on tape to get this to work. Yeah, and are you talking highland pipes or small pipes or border pipes? Uh, I've only tried this on highland pipes and Scottish small pipes. Okay. Um, well, and, and this is where the, the bore of the chanter has a lot of influence and in what mm. notes can be cross-fingered. So uh, conically bored instruments like the highland pipes or the border pipes tend to have more success with the cross-fingering. But those of you out west at high altitude, it definitely changes things a lot. Mm. Um, and so that that can lead to two other options. One is um, just using a piece of tape and fingering the C as you normally would. 
though that can flatten the D a tiny bit depending on the channer. Mm -hmm. um, you can use tape again, but maybe not quite as much uh, as you were with your normal C sharp fingering. Uh, use it, just put a little bit less tape on that same hole and then combine that with the cross fingering. Mm, that sure, may also help work. Yeah. Yeah. And it may help that may allow your D to be a tiny bit less flat. Um, That's a good pro tip. I've never thought to try that. The other option, um, which might be less possible or um, uh, people might not feel quite this daring, but uh, some of us now have these extra thumb holes. So a thumb hole for our lower hand, mm. uh, in my case, it's my right hand. Um, that's on the back of the channer. And if you finger a B and lift your back thumb away, opening that sound hole, then you get a very in-tune C natural if it's been drilled in the right spot. Yeah. Um, I was lucky enough that my pipe maker is willing to just go ahead and do that to his own chanters. Um, so more and more, uh, I am making use of that particular feature. And let's give him a plug. Who makes your pipes? I've often wondered because I see you playing, you know, pipes that are in different keys and stuff in your various videos and, and all. I have a, a little bit of a hodgepodge, but by and large, uh, and increasingly, they are uh, pipes made by Nate Banton. Mm. Um, my first set of Bellows pipes was a set of uh, Garvey um, border pipes made by Nigel Richards in Edinburgh. I still have the full set, uh, and I still use the drones, but only for a few more weeks. I have some new drones coming in from Nate. Uh, I swapped the channer out uh, with one that um, Will Woodson made. Um, Will is a partner with and has been a partner with Nate Banton over there in Portland, Maine. Um, and they used wood from a tree that used to grow in my backyard. Um, oh, that's amazing. That's which so is fun. really fun. Yeah. Um, so um, I have a few different, you know, channers in different keys. I do have one uh, little D small pipe channer made by Hamish Moore. Uh, probably back in the 90s, I, I bought that used. And uh, that's, yeah, in terms of bellows pipes, that's my mixture there. And then Highland pipes are Sinclair pipes from the 80s. Mm. That's the setup, huh? What's, um, I think it might be of interest, What's what are some of the most clear div distinctions between border pipes and Scottish small pipes that you could point to? Yeah, there are two... Uh, uh, for the audience, at least, for the listener, there are two um, really prominent differences. One is volume, uh, and the other is tone. And it really has a lot to do uh, with the bore of the chanter. So as I mentioned earlier, there's the conical bore, so it's cone-shaped um, for highland pipes and border pipes. That makes them sound louder. Uh, the expanding bore uh, makes them louder and also higher-pitched. And there's sound holes, you know, where your fingers are. The finger holes tend to be a little larger too, mm. and the reeds may be a little bit, um, a little bit stiffer, requiring you know more air pressure to get them to vibrate. Mm. Small pipe channers have a cylindrical bore, so it's more parallel, um, which is closer to a clarinet or a flute. And if you imagine those two instruments, you can understand that why the small pipes tend to sound both quieter and a little bit more mellow. Ah, oh, yes, that makes a lot of sense.
this is another favorite melody of mine. I don't recall when I first heard it, but I do recall that um, falling in love with the melody the, the moment that I heard it and was thrilled that it was Scottish. Uh, but then I hit the stumbling block that, oh, this doesn't naturally fit the Scottish pipe changer. Um, it requires uh, some manipulation of the C uh, to pull that down from a C sharp to a C natural mm -hmm. and get the modality right. You could you can try playing it with a, a C sharp, but it will change the mood of the tune entirely. So I definitely suggest finding some way to get that C natural if any of you are trying that. But it's just a gorgeous, simple melody and uh, a really nice one to perform and invite the audience in on the refrain, which is simply Alleluia. That's an easy word. People already know it. Uh, they don't have to speak Gaelic or memorize lyrics. They can just, they've heard the melody sung on the verse. Now they can sing the Alleluia against the same melody. Beautiful. I noticed that it's listed uh, modally as being uh, D, Mixolydian, and the drone note here says D and or A. Exactly. And so that, um, that relates to my earlier point where you often have two very good options for tuning your drones to, um, to whatever melody you're playing. I happen to be sitting next to my piano. I had a feeling it might come in handy here. Yeah, so give us some if, of that. If you'll allow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's just much more quickly to, to, to demonstrate different keys and tunings uh, without having to inflate the bag. So the melody, one version of the melody is... So you can have a D drone. just as well and sometimes the fifth note will work even better and together So for most of the, um, the little key box that I put above uh, tunes that I publish, and it's become a real habit of mine to do that, um, I'll encourage people to, to try two different drones, singularly, singularly or uh, together, if I think it works, they both work for the tune. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of fun to just go through and, and hear how, how they are different, each, each one of those, but, you know, each very pretty. Um, I noticed that you also include chords in with a lot of your arrangements, and as in the case, as in this case with this tune, a melody or excuse me, a harmony line as well. Do you have favorite instruments with which to play a lot of these, uh, you know, small pipe tunes? Oh gosh, uh, no, no real favorites. Um, of course, um, I've played with uh, Jeremiah and Alex a lot, so the accordion. And the fiddle or nickel harpa, Alex uh, is, a, is a really great nickel harpa player. That's probably a whole other episode talking about the nickel harpa. <laughs> yeah, what is um, that? <laughs> exactly. It's wonderful Swedish medieval keyed fiddle. Um, so this tune sounds great with those. It sounds great with the organ. It sounds great with a fiddle or a harp. Um, really, the, the sky's the limit. 
Yeah, I love that. I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head if there's any of these in this collection, but I love that in some of your other collections, you've included some alternative melody notes where if the traditional melody line is limited when, you know, like you can't get there with the Highland pipe or small, you know, Scottish small pipe uh, chanter, you put in parentheses, here's where you could go with the melody here in case you have a fiddle playing that line and the pipes are playing the harmony line or or something else. Exactly. Or some singing it. Yeah, singing uh, it. Absolutely. I guess that's maybe that's where I'm seeing most of it is that in your collection, uh, how can I keep from singing? Yeah, uh, exactly. So um, we do have such a limited instrument and so many great melodies just love to nudge up one note higher than we can normally play. Um, and sometimes they're important notes. Other times they're just passing turns. Um, so, but I like to include that information just so people know there is that option or maybe that was the original uh, intention for the melody, but here's what we can do as pipers. Yeah. Yeah, and another thing I appreciate about a lot of your arrangements is that, like, um, I'm trying to think. I think it's the Wondrous Love arrangement that I got for pipes and, and organ that um, you publish it in A and in D, and it's really useful, especially for someone who's coming to this from a piping-specific, Highland piping-specific position, because you can have music for the organ, or excuse me, maybe it was, was it D and B flat? What, what it, what, all I'm getting at is that you can have the written music in A, as it were, so that a Highland Piper can play that, whether they are on a B-flat chanter or a D whistle or anything, and it's very familiar for them. But then the accompanist can be looking at something that is printed in the quote-unquote, well, yeah, not even quoted, the, the real key, as it were, the key that's the sounding. sounding. Yeah, the sounding key, exactly. Um, sure, and that's, uh, that's a standard practice from uh, a lot of orchestral instruments or, say, uh, some jazz instruments like the saxophone, they're transposing, which means the, the notes that the, the player is seeing is not what we're actually hearing. Um, but for the sake of, you know, being able to swap instruments or swap chanters in our case and not have to equate the same fingering pattern to several different notes, um, it's, it does make life easier for the person reading the music for the piper or, yeah. or whomever. Yeah. Oh, I love it that I love that it makes, you know, a lot of pipers play the low D whistle and it 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 makes it makes uh it makes session playing very accessible to have that sort of transposed in writing for us basically. Yeah. No, it it can really help. I agree. Cool. Uh any other notes you'd like to or any other info you'd like to share about this tune? I don't think so. Um what's what I'm realizing um you know, when you had asked some favorite carols um, ahead of time, and I, I sort of picked these three that, that tend to re reappear and reemerge in my repertoire um, every year for, for various events that I play for in December. Um, it's, there are three different modes. So we're, we've looked at two. The, um, the A Solis Ortus Cardinés is um, based in the uh, Dorian mode, I think. Uh, I should probably go and just double check that while I'm talking. But it's, uh, I think it's an important, kind of having a little bit of understanding about the different modes. Um, yeah. yeah, that one is in, in Dorian. Um, having a little bit of understanding of, of what we mean when we talk about modal and, and how they create these different flavors. And again, the piano will be very helpful probably in that regard. So, 
with Osotis Ortus Cardinae. That one is in the Dorian mode. It's basically a minor scale. But the sixth note is raised. It's a major sixth. And uh, that, that's used a lot in Celtic music um, and I think some Scandinavian as well. That's yeah. my all-time favorite mode. It's mostly dark, but there's this ray of sunshine, that, that sixth. That ray of sunshine, that ray of hope that comes cutting through that, the darkness otherwise. And I really, really love that, that particular mode. Mm. Um, and I should maybe mention very briefly here, uh, when we, a lot of us traditional players refer to modal music, we're referring to something that's neither major, you know, that, that um, generically happy key, mm -hmm. nor fully minor, which is more generically a, a sad emotion. Uh, which so happy and sad, but go ahead, sorry. Oh, just it, sort of in, in, in very bagpipe centric language, that would be like, major would be your c and f are normal they're sharp but they are they're left as they are yeah correct and and the most majorish tunes that we play are tunes in the key of d um so um think of any amazing grace right amazing grace the, the high drive is a great example mm, yeah because um, that uses all of the notes of the scale and it's firmly in d major and f has that happy happy optimistic bright outlook um, a fully minor key on a bagpipe uh, without using tape or any trickery would be B minor. So um, the Haunting or the Miscovered Mountains or Patty's Leather Breeches, mm. those are all in that more forlorn, depressed key. By contrast, modal music is, is often a mix, a hybrid of the two, and, and often in different ways. It can be mostly sad, but with that ray of hope, or mostly happy, but with some nostalgia. It's more complicated uh, emotionally, I think. And for me, that's much more interesting. Yeah. So fast forward to uh, the Christ Child's Lullaby, and we're in Mixolydian. And we pipers play in the Mixolydian mode all of the time uh, when we're based in A, almost all the time when we're based in A. Um, the Battle of Waterloo or Bonaparte Crossing the Rockies is firmly mm. in A Mixolydian. But here we're in D Mixolydian. And that's just, Mixolydian is another way of saying a major scale. But we're taking the seventh note and making it flatter. So it changes the mood. It also changes the chords underneath. A one chord sounds like that uh, in a major key. A four chord, also major. Oh, sorry, that's the five chord. Here's the four chord. Five chord. Uh, in the major key. In modal, it changes the chords even. And suddenly the whole mood is, is uh, altered, um, for me, in a really intriguing way. And so, correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, but I'm thinking that one thing that might be very relatable for a lot of pipers is their experience playing versus hearing different renditions of Minstrel Boy. Huh. That yeah. on, on the pipes, it sounds one way, but if you try to play it on the penny whistle without an, you know, an alternative fingering, um, it comes out a little different. And if you hear some popular recordings of it, 
it, it you know it's like oh that's kind of different it doesn't quite sound exactly the same and I, I i might be wrong but i'm pretty sure that's just a modal change because of what the seventh note being uh a half tone higher or lower from one to the exactly. other exactly that's exactly it and there's so many cases where pipers have taken a melody that that really kind of needs that seventh note to be sharp to be raised would be another way of saying that um and we just compress it into our our own Mm -hmm. mode and it changes the mood and which, sometimes which it, that's that's our g right sometimes our g exactly. is just sharper flat exactly we don't really normally have a g sharp on our bagpipe channers so yeah. um, that tune would normally have it a fiddler playing that tune in the same key would play a g sharp we don't have the option and so uh it comes out modal um and some people find that utterly charming other people are really irritated by it. <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, um, let's look at the other mode then uh, with page 134 in the collection. Sure. And here we're kind of returning to um, happier, more fully major tonality. Um, and this one is a um, somewhat well-known hymn in a lot of church hymnals. Um, the German title, I understand, is Trustet, Trustet Meine Lieben, I think, something like that. That sounded really really good to me as a oh. person who does not speak German, never been to well, Germany. I thought that sounded like great German. I, I, I'm totally faking it, but uh, we'll just go with it. Um, comfort, comfort ye my people is, is the common English translation for that. And this is, uh, the, it's sort of thought of as a British carol, but, but in fact, the, the melody is believed to have been written by Louis Bourgeois uh, in the Renaissance, uh, a French composer um, who wrote a lot of music for the church way back when. And so it has a sort of Renaissance flair to it in that the rhythm is, is really, uh, it changes the, the meter in a way. We don't really write it that way necessarily, um, but from measure to measure, it can feel like it's either in 6-8 or 3-4 or some weird hybrid like that. Yeah. And it's very, um, I find very addictive tune and rhythm both.
best of all, I love the the lyrics, um, which he uh, Louis Bourgeois did not write. I believe Johann O'Lyrius um, was the the lyricist, and then later translated into English. But they are just very hopeful um, lyrics, which is perfect for the season of Advent. It's really a um, you know this is the time of longing and and of hope for. Um, well, for better times and, and a number of different ways. So both the music and the text align beautifully uh, for that effect in this, in this carol. Uh, I can add that, um, that when I have uh, heard this sung in churches, it's often been sung at a very slow tempo, and I think that's because um, church music directors and organists might might be afraid that the congregation will be confused by the, the changing rhythms, the changing meter, and that it's not a, a classic 4-4 four, four mm. or 3-4 pulse. Um, and so out of, out of a fear of confusing people, they slow it down. Um, when you take this melody up to a, a faster clip, it really blossoms, it really comes alive. And um, when we've done this with live audiences, the the effect on our listeners is is really obvious and palpable. They they at some in some cases have leapt to their feet and clapped um, mm. in delight. Just they they can't they can't resist uh, when you have a really good piece of music and the right groove to it. Um, people can't help but move in some way, um, and that's what it's it's kind of designed for. Um, in fact, what carols uh, were ultimately uh, grew out of uh, the idea of singing. And dancing at the same time. That's the origin of the, the word carol, I believe. Huh, I didn't know that. Um, if I could, if I can convince you to stay on for just a few more minutes, Tim. Sure. Um, I'd love to talk one more tune. Um, I'm not sure exactly which one. Some sort of, sort of, sort of low-hanging fruit in that it would be simple and straightforward. Something that some of our newest pipers would think, I'm going to play that, you know. Um, which I hope they think that of any of the tunes we've already talked to or talked about already, but I'm thinking maybe something that they've heard before for sure and is in pretty simple meter that they could just hop right onto their Highland pipes or anything and play. Yeah, um, there's of course, um, you know, uh, Adeste Fideles, uh, which is O Come All Ye Faithful. Um, that's a really common one in a lot of church hymnals. Let's run with that one. I, th okay. sure, I, I would be very surprised if anybody hadn't heard that one. Um, let's see. That's oh, it's page on page two. Thank you. Right at the top there. Tell me about this tune. Um, all right. So uh, this is also, you'll note that I did not use the common title for, uh, for printing this, though I include it as a subtitle. Yeah. Um, oh, come all ye faithful. We all know, we all know that one. Pretty much all of us. Um, Adeste Fideles, I think, would be the pronunciation of the Latin title. Um, and this is where it might be good to sort of point out that in a lot of church hymnals, you have one piece of music, one melody that's used for several different poems, several different sets of lyrics. Um, that can have nothing, almost nothing to do with each other. Mm, I have um, seen in hymnals before that a lot of times hymnals will have at the back a section where you can get, there's a list of um, tune titles and it runs parallel to a list of how many, wh which hymns in that book run with this 
melody line, basically. Exactly. I can always pick the people who have been at least bored during a sermon. Boring <laughs> yeah. in, in the hymnal. <laughs> um, so that's exactly it. There are tune titles and then there are lyric titles. And um, most of us tend to be familiar with the lyric titles, that, you know, which is drawn from the poetry of whatever we're singing. Um, but you should know that each hymn has its own tune title too. So in the case of the most well-known hymn of all, uh, Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace is actually the lyric title. That's the poetry that was put to the tune that is known as New Britain. Mm. So if you're referring just to the music itself, you could get really geeky and say, uh, well, we're playing New Britain. Um, and in your heads, you could even imagine all of those letters in all caps because to distinguish between the two, um, church musicians tend to use all caps for the, the tune name and then the mixture for the lyric title. Mm. So here we have Adeste Fidelis, that would be the tune title, and then O Come All Ye Faithful is the lyric title. And this is just a really, really well-known melody and set of lyrics, and they pair together really well. Um, this is in any hymnal, but I, I thought I would go to one of my most trusted sources again for this, the New Oxford Book of Carols. Um, and uh, they don't seem to know the origin of, of either the tune or the text here. I love it, it when that happens. I think that's so fun. You know, yeah, you who knows how all kinds of things. Yeah, especially when we're we're dealing with some Latin text here. It yeah, can be really old, um, but it's classic standard four four rhythm, very accessible. It's in the key of D major, so it's a bright happy key. Um, we don't have to do anything weird for our pipes. Yeah, we even have that note there: drones A only, and that is get your Highland pipes out. That's what they're doing. Exactly. And if you play this with a church organist on a, a conventional set of Highland pipes, just know that your pipes are sounding one half step, uh, a semitone higher than what you're thinking or what you're reading. Or so, at least approximately depending on where your pipe major had you at the last practice, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of wiggle room there. But that will help your organist. So uh, if you go a, one that the very next key above D on a piano is D sharp or E flat. It would be much more uh, easy for the organist to think in E flat. So you're thinking in D, you're reading in D, um, but in fact you're sounding in E flat if you're playing this on Highland pipes. And that's what you would tell your accompanist. Um, and, uh, and this is essentially the motivation behind the any purchase of B flat chanters is basically to bring your pipes down that half step so you can just all be looking at the same thing rather than forcing your accompanist to shift up a half step. Yeah. Uh, the organ that's in the symphony hall, the concert hall at the um, Maison Symphonique up in Montreal, the, the Montreal Symphony Orchestra, they have fairly new hall there with a new pipe organ. There are 7,000 pipes for that one <laughs> pipe organ. Amazing. So imagine trying, you know, it takes us a while to sort of retune our pipes, our chanter and our drones and get everything just so and stabilized. But imagine having to tune 7,000 pipes. Um, it definitely helps to have a B-flat chanter and it makes your job easier getting in tune to a true B-flat or, you know, the modern day B-flat. Yeah. Um, so that your poor organist uh, can be in tune with you and not have to retune yeah. hundreds or thousands of pipes. Yeah, absolutely. It might be just nice to remind folks that these 
these carols are ultimately about a very hopeful story. Um, and especially when we're going through a tough period, it's great to be reminded that there's a lot of music that has survived some very dark times um, and helped many people get through some very dark times. So by all means, play, uh, explore the, the, the repertoire of Christmas carols, whether you're drawing from this book or anything else, there's some great music there. And also don't forget that uh, the basis in dance, um, that carol comes from, from the idea of singing and dancing with others um, at the same time. <laughs>